This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is brought to you by Maritime Developments Limited, engineering specialists for the global energy sectors. Decades of hands-on marine experience have given them deep industry insight and first-hand understanding of challenges faced on the back deck. Every MDL system is designed with ultimate portability in mind to optimise transit, speed up mobilisations and minimise idle times because time really is money in the energy business. If you've been looking for a flex lay partner who can tailor a solution to your requirements, look no further than MaritimeDevelopments.com. Oh, great slight of foot there. It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 17 of the ABZ Football Podcast. And unfortunately, Gary Scott has dropped out of the matchday squad due to illness. So this week, the lineup, it's as makeshift as the defence against Sigma Olimic all those years ago. But this week, it'll be myself, Gavin Baxter, and Graham Steele completing your lineup. We're a man down, but we're going to try and put in a better effort than Aberdeen did against Simon earlier this season. Graham, how are you doing? I was fine up until that Sigma Olimic reference, and then all those months of counselling have just come flooding back to me. So no mentions of Olimic from now on. Well, my apologies, but it felt uh, it felt relevant given the uh, the guest we have later on. But we'll uh, we'll leave those stories for a later uh, a later time in the show. This week, though, it's another busy episode as we take a look back over the disappointing defeat to Motherwell on Saturday. And we cast our eyes over the latest round of fixtures as we head into the final international break of this calendar year. We will then take a look at the women's team and their league fixtures against Glasgow City and Motherwell. And we take our regular look at the young team and round up our loanies and their performances in the last week. Then after the break, we are delighted to continue our series of interviews with ex-Dons with an exclusive in-depth conversation with a boyhood Aberdeen fan who made his way to Pataudry when signed from Dundee United by Jimmy Calderwood. And he went on to make 52 appearances for the Dons, scoring one goal before recently being promoted to be the club's youth phase manager. It's Duff Man himself, Stuart Duff. Aberdeen nil, Motherwell 2, the SPFL Premiership, 6th of November, 2021, Pataudry Stadium. Stephen Glass keen to finish this round of fixtures with three points and he kept faith with the same starting 11 from last week against Hearts. The Dons lining up in the same 3-4-1-2 formation that we started with last week. And it was Aberdeen who started the brighter of the teams despite Motherwell setting their stall early with some robust challenges to say the very least. A Ramirez volley was cleared in the six-yard area before Lewis Ferguson's header was clawed off the line by well-keeper Liam Kelly. Ferguson came close again a couple of minutes later, cutting through the Motherwell backline before lashing a shot over the bar. Dean Campbell was next to have a go, but his tame effort from 20 yards was dealt with comfortably by Kelly. Barry Maguire finally found his way into Don Robertson's book on 21 minutes, followed by Van Veen a minute later. Scarcely believable that the visitors had got to nearly a quarter of the game without troubling the referee's notebook, given some of the challenges that were flying around. A superb break by Aberdeen on 27 minutes, nearly saw the Dons take the lead. Watkins tearing 70 yards up the main stand, touchline, 
and his accurate cross was met by Campbell on the volley, which Kelly once more did well to deal with. From the resulting corner, Watkins' header looked to be looping into the net until Ojala produced a fine clearance on the line. The Dons continued to move the ball well and impress. A fine move from back to front led to Hedges driving a shot that clipped Ojo on its way past the post. Barry Maguire was then extremely fortunate not to receive a second yellow as Ojo knocked the ball past him on the main stand touchline and was subsequently wiped out by the Motherwell man. Unbelievably, the free kick was awarded, but no further action was taken when in any other situation on many a game across the land that would surely have merited a second yellow. The Dons finished the half still on the front foot, a 45th minute corner from McGeek dropped into the six yard area, creating the stromash to end all stromashes with Kelly eventually dropping onto the ball to send the sides into the break uh, level. Now, needless to say, if you were there or you watched this game on Red TV, you'll know that it was a real Jekyll and Hyde performance from Aberdeen. Because I think at that halftime, anyone was watching would agree that the Dons looked much more uh, likely to go on and win the all three points. But sure enough, Motherwell capitalized on some amateur defending by the Dons to take the lead on 49 minutes. A decent ball swept in by Goss was met by Van Veen, who was left in acres of space in the Aberdeen box to deftly knock the ball across Joe Lewis to put the visitors a goal to the good with their first shot of the game. Less than 10 minutes later, it was two and pretty much game over. A soft free kick awarded for high feet by Dylan McGeek on McGinley. And it was Goss again who lofted a free kick towards the back post where Lamy rose highest to nod back to Van Veen, who was once again left completely on mark in the centre of the goal to volley home. This prompted a reshuffle for the Dons, McGeek making way for McGinn with Brown moving back into the midfield and Aberdeen settling back into the same groove as the first half. Plenty of possession and passing, but with little in the way of cutting edge as Motherwell sat deeper and deeper, throwing bodies on the line to block shots and ensure that Aberdeen were afforded no clear-cut opportunities. The closest the Dons came was from a Campbell free kick. Ferguson's header looked destined for the net, but for a fine stop by Liam Kelly tipping the ball onto the post, but with David Bates following in and he had the goal at his mercy only for Kelly to somehow get a glove on the ball to knock it out of Bates' stride. A pretty fantastic stop by the middle keeper and one that summed up the Dons afternoon to an extent. The remainder of the game ebbed away as Motherwell picked up their second win of the season against Aberdeen with a scarcely believable statistic of only having four shots on target against the Dons this season and converting all four of them. So for Aberdeen, it's seven points from 15 in this uh section of the season shall we say and the dons are left sitting seventh at the table as we move into the final international break of the calendar year graham you and i were both there uh what were your initial impressions ultimately after the 90 minutes pretty disappointed and frustrated to drop yet more points and we were pretty soft-centered setting half in particular but it's a little bit surprising i know we've been on a good run of form uh with the the three games previous so that you know doesn't mean that we'd suddenly cracked it and we were invincible again but I genuinely thought taking that form in the match and after the first half in particular I don't think I don't recall Lewis having to do anything or certainly nothing that um, you know was above just routine and I thought we played quite well Motherwell's tactics weren't really working and that some of the you know the robust challenges etc weren't really putting Aberdeen off their stride. Players were still willing to take the ball 
I thought we created some decent chances. You know, you've kind of summed them up. We had enough chances to score. I don't think it would have been, I don't think it's unfair to say that we, we could have easily been 1-0 up and we weren't. Half time, based on the first half, I think you and I were sort of turned to each other and said, well, if we, you know, if we do that again for 45, pretty confident we're going to get the goal. And once we got one, didn't really see us looking back. I thought we would go on and, and wrap up the points. But then I have no idea what was said or not said at half time, but that was a really gross second half. And I didn't see that coming. I mean, we've seen that this season, but I just didn't see it coming based on the, the first half and having picked up some, you know, pretty tidy points haul in the week prior. So really frustrating and sort of puzzling as well as to where that came from in, in the second half in particular. Yeah, I mean, I guess in many ways it just teaches us that, you know, or not maybe not teaches us, but it just like, you know, reinforces when will we learn to just not be optimistic. Yeah, that's a good shout. Uh, we've been at this for years and we, we still haven't learned, so maybe the answer is we'll never learn. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if fans really needed a reality check as such. I don't know if, you know, a, a good week doesn't mean that the season was sorted. I think most people were probably enjoying it while it lasted, but still... It was just disappointing. And I don't really, I know I get a bit stick from you and Gary. I'm not exactly the, the tactics guru, but it didn't really look like Motherwell had, you know, sort of really done much to influence the second half, as in, you know, personnel changes, wherever. We just didn't seem to have any, any ideas devoid of creativity, which wasn't the case in the first half. So let's uh, look at the game from start to finish. So Aberdeen, we, we lined up in the sort of 3 4 3. 3-5-2 hybrid kind of formation we've been playing recently, probably, you know, due to circumstance more than anything else. Were you surprised that Scott Brown started at the centre back rather than in the midfield? Because for my money, I thought we would have started in the same way we did the second half against Hearts with Scott Brown in the centre along Ferguson and McGeek, and we would really look to impose our will upon Motherwell. I was a little bit surprised for that reason. I think... I mean, Motherwell, they were actually a little bit dirtier than I sort of expected, but you generally expect quite a tough game, which is, I guess probably goes for any team you're playing. So, yeah, I thought you would want your most combative midfielder in there, like you say, to try and just stamp his authority and Aberdeen's authority on the game. And, you know, if the way the game goes and you maybe want to shift them back to, to make subs or whatever, that's slightly different. But I'm not so sure I would have started him where we did. Yeah, I feel it was a decision that was maybe taken to combat Motherwell's front three. But, you know, for my money, again, I think, you know, you show confidence in your players and you push Motherwell's forwards back rather than being overly concerned with what they're doing. But, you know, maybe that's why I'm not the manager of Aberdeen. But neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I share that point of view. We're the home team and we should be imposing our game upon the opposition. With the odd exception where you might have to just accept that you're going to have to ride this one out and maybe sneak something. But I didn't feel that's the way we should have approached the game against Motherwell. But all things considering, as we say that, Aberdeen were by far and away the better team in the first half. And we created a number of, maybe not clear-cut chances, but certainly half chances. And, you know, we're putting pressure on Motherwell. And yeah, I thought all in all, a very, very positive first half performance. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think you're probably right. There's probably not one, I don't know if there's an obvious chance, maybe the header cleared off the line. But you're right, the point being, for once, we were actually creating chances and not looking too ropey at the back. 
which is where you'd rather be. It's not always been the story of this season. But it's one of these games where, yeah, we had a lot of the ball in the first half, where we looked quite dangerous with it, whereas in other games, we've had a lot of the ball, but it's just popping it around the back and it's boring and it's, it's ineffective. This was sort of good use of the ball. Um, Watkins in particular thought was really pretty good in the first half. You mentioned in the summary, it was an excellent run, really good cross to, to Campbell, who I actually thought, you know, I, don't, I didn't think it was an easy chance for Campbell. I thought he did quite well with it and it was a pretty tidy stop from the keeper. But I was just one of a few examples where players were linking up well and good runs were being made. I think there was a there was one in the first half as well. I can't remember who it was, passed it into Ramirez and he just sort of dominated, let it run through his legs and Watkins was onto it. You know, there was a bit of guys sort of starting to work together and not just passing it around for the sake of it. The, the passes were actually giving us opportunity to, to break forward, but I don't really know why that disappeared. Well, it wouldn't be an Aberdeen performance this season without those defensive frailties emerging once more. So moving to the second half and it's four minutes in and kind of a series of uh, bad decisions and players just not being aware of what's around them seemingly. And I don't know if you've seen a still image of this, but when the ball is crossed in from the Motherwell um, left back or left-sided player, Van Veen is the only Motherwell player in our box and there's not a red shirt anywhere near him. David Bates is covering space, you know, that's pretty much not in any way relevant to the current situation. Ross McCroy is out. I don't really know where Scott Brown is at this time. It's a really, really poor goal from Aberdeen to concede. And it's the story of our season in that, yeah, Motherwell did not have to do much to score, you know, their first goal. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm actually looking at that right now. And you're right. Um, McCrory's in the picture with what looks like his arms out in the sort of what am I supposed to do here position, uh, which is not a great defensive position. Van Veen's all on his own. And yeah, I don't know what Bates is playing at. Yeah, it, it just, I don't know what more to say because it absolutely sums up this season. People are not scoring worldies against us. We're not getting bullied, for example. So say, for example, you know, the, the ball comes in and Van Veen comes through and batters a couple of defenders out of the way and really wants it and wins it. That's annoying, but that's slightly different to stomach. This is just defenders just not just not doing their job. It's as simple as that. And you're right, I think it's a lack of awareness because you know, Bates isn't even in that particular image, um, isn't looking around to see, oh, actually, wait a minute, someone's on my shoulder. Um, and that's not the first, and I'm pretty sure it won't be the last time we can see the goal like that this season. Let's have a little chat about David Bates, because there's been a lot of talk about him online um, and comparisons with um, other defenders we've had in recent times who've perhaps been a little bit bomb scare at times, namely one Ash Taylor. What have you made of David Bates so far? I, I'm undecided, to, to, to be perfectly honest. I don't really remember him that well, uh, you know, when he was in Scotland first time out, and... The fact that he'd gone away uh, to Germany was something different and it's a pretty high standard of football that he had been playing at. Um, so I was quite I was quite optimistic when we signed him. I, I don't know what it is. He, I don't think he's that bad with the ball at his feet, so I don't think he's a bad player. And he seems to kind of fit the mould of what it looks like we want, as in you want the defenders to be comfortable on the ball and play passes out rather than getting rid of it. He looks like he's got a suitable physique, um, I wouldn't expect him to be getting bullied that often, but he just doesn't seem to be, I don't know if he's unsure in the system we are trying to play him in uh, or what it is, because 
I know he's still a relatively young man, but I wouldn't say he's inexperienced. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, but the mistakes he is making are mistakes I would expect from, you know, someone just kind of breaking into the the team. And that, that I know he's breaking into the Aberdeen team, but he's, he's played enough games that um, I was expecting more from him, to be honest. Yeah, my thinking is that, I think like yourself, you know, David Bates, he came through at Rangers and got into the first team, which is, all joking aside, as a young player coming through their academy, especially, it's not easy getting into their first team. And he did that. There was a time when he was in the Scotland team. There was a lot of chat that him and Scott McKenna could be like the long-term centre-back pairing for Scotland. Hamburg are not the team they once were, but, you know, you're not a mug if you're going to Hamburg from Scotland. So I was likewise very excited to see him come. And I don't know, like yourself, if it's a case that he's just a player that's you know, devoid of confidence off the back of his last six months, 12 months with Hamburg, where he was basically just ostracized from the team completely. Or yeah, if he's working his way into a new system, maybe he's not playing in a back three before. Not quite sure about it. It's, yeah, it's not quite materialized in the way that I would hope. Um, I don't want to single David Bates out, but yeah, it's, just, it's a relevant point because I think that, you know, he's been found wanting on a number of occasions as have the entire defence, and that brings us to the second goal. Um, so, from what I remember of this, I think either Mugabe or O'Hara go past Dean Campbell's if he's not even there. A, a ball is crossed in. Joe Lewis probably could have come and taken it. I don't think that's unfair to say. And ultimately, this um, series of play results in McGeeck effectively committing a high foot and giving the referee a decision to make. Now, let's be fair, you could drive a bus between the space between McGeeck's foot and the guy's head, but still gives the referee a, a decision to make. From the subsequent free kick, the ball's popped into the back post area. Once more, Dean Campbell is either caught underneath it or he's not aware of the Motherwell player behind him, but he makes no effort to win the ball or put the Motherwell attacker off, and it's nodded back to Van Veen, who, to be fair, such a pretty tidy finish from him. Again, same old story. Players making poor decisions and, yeah, all too easy for the opposition. I totally agree. I was just watching it back when you were chatting and it's it's just woeful all round, to be honest. I'm actually, I'm going to skip past how we got to the free kick. You know, it's kind of irrelevant. It wasn't, in my opinion, a particularly difficult situation to deal with in terms of the set-piece delivery. But you're right, and watching it again, Campbell just kind of ducks under it. So he's clearly got no idea that I think there might be two Motherwell players behind him. So he's got no idea. He's not watching the ball. It doesn't look like, and he's, he's certainly not trying to jump into someone and, you know, make it difficult for them. And then, yeah, again, ball's headed into the, you know, sort of the, whatever it is, six-yard line. And surprise, surprise, it's some other player that's one at first. And you're right, it's a pretty tidy finish, but it just seems to be any time the ball goes into the, our box, it's inevitably not an Aberdeen player that's first to it. And it's just pretty poor all round. I realise, you know, some people might say, well, Campbell's not a defender. I don't know if any of us actually know what his real position is, but it doesn't really matter what position you play, in my opinion, to ball in the box, you've got a job to do. So you should, as a minimum, be at least jumping with the guy, make it difficult for him, rather than be sort of shirking, shirking away from it and ducking under the ball. So 2-0 down, uh, very difficult situation to be in. At 1-0, you're still hoping that, you know, there's still a chance we've we did it against Hearts. We can do it again here, but 2-0. Game was effectively over. 
Um, surprisingly ineffective, almost anonymous displays from Watkins and Ramirez in that second half, um, especially from Watkins, who tends to have this ability of, you know, maybe things are not going our way, we'll, you know, draw back in and, and try and make things happen. But yeah, just nothing really got going. I mean, we brought Niall McGinn on for Dylan McGeek on the hour mark. Johnny Hayes came on for Campbell with 10 minutes left to go. But, you know, neither of them really uh, made any kind of significant impact. We don't really know, need to go into the rest of the game in too much detail. You know, as, as I said, we had a lot of possession, but bar the set piece, which produced an unbelievable save from Liam Kelly, um, two unreal saves from opposition goalkeepers um, in back-to-back games with Pataudry. Must have some kind of curse on us or something. But um, I think we talked about this after the game. So if we look at the Aberdeen bench, bearing in mind that Nell McGinn and Johnny Hayes were the two that came on, you know, Johnny Hayes like still got a role to play Aberdeen, but I think we'd all tend to get Nell McGinn's best days are, are behind him. On the bench on Saturday, we had J. Emmanuel Thomas, we had Austin Samuels, and we had Matty Longstaff. If these guys are not being looked at as options in a game like that, I would dare say that their time at Aberdeen is pretty much already done. I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, that's a number of games now that, you know, Jet doesn't get anywhere near the starting lineup and he doesn't come on. Uh, I don't think I'm alone in being quite content with that. He's nowhere near what we need, in my opinion. Samuels is a bit of a surprise. I know we loaned him and there was a bit of chat around how great a deal it was that we'd, you know, sort of arranged the op- option to buy him as part of the deal, which you kind of, to me, read that, right, we rate this guy and let's get that wrapped up if we want to before in case he turns on during the loan and then obviously we're you know we're blown out the water with that with an offer and I appreciate he did miss you know he had been out injured but I'm not as far as I'm aware I've got to assume he's if he's not fit enough for 90 he's fit enough for something otherwise he wouldn't be on the bench and I'd been quite enjoying watching him and he's a little bit raw he's got a lot to learn but he's only like 19 or something but he was he was quick and I try to think the last game I saw him in was when we were home to Celtic I actually thought he did quite well he caused them quite a lot of bother. And the odd time where we were under pressure, you, know, you could just put it up the line, he'll chase it. Not many people are going to catch him. And it just got us up the pitch. And he, yeah, going back to the Celtic game, I thought he was he's quite good. He's quite tricky. So I don't really understand, you know, if, if you don't can't decide, does that mean manager just doesn't rate him that he didn't come on? Because he's the one that I would have probably preferred to have had over McGinnon Hayes. Personally, I thought he would have given us something a little bit different begins a spent force in my opinion he's been he's been really good for Aberdeen but those days are long gone in my opinion Longstaff not seen enough of him but I don't really think that was a, a sub we were crying out for on Saturday because I, I don't I don't see what he would have brought to that type of game I don't think he's particularly quick or creative you know he's not an attacking player as such so yeah I think you're probably right if these guys are not getting anywhere near the team I'd be surprised to see certainly all of them here come February. Yes, from my perspective there is that if Matty Longstaff with the experience that he has um, playing at the level he has, if he's not being seen as almost first name on the team sheet against a team like Motherwell, then I don't really see the purpose of him being here, either for us, either for Newcastle or either for him. And yeah, Austin Samuels, I don't know if you've seen this, but he posted like a story on Instagram that seemed to kind of be illustrating some frustration with his current predicament at Aberdeen, shall we say. 
It's a strange one because, like, as, as you say, I think the last game he did play was Celtic, and I thought he was really good, especially in the second half. Listen, we're not on the training ground. We're not, you know, behind the scenes. There could be things going on. Who's to say? But um, it seems like a very strange one that he's not being looked at as an option. And again, I, to the best of my knowledge, Teddy Jenks is available, but nowhere near the squad. So I think what we talked about afterwards is that this game, and I think you're right, I don't think anyone was getting carried away with the last three results. I think we all knew that we're still very much in a process. But for me, given the criteria that um, represents success for Aberdeen, and Dave Cormack mentioned this in his infamous Sports Sound appearance, where it's it was to win trophies, it's to be in Europe. For me, this game was a stark reminder that we are a long way away from where we need to be and that there are a number of individuals at the club who, frankly, have no place at Aberdeen if we want to achieve those uh, achieve those goals. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely fair, and it's just uh, you know I think we've we've mentioned it a few times, and I know you know you overhear people chatting about the fact that we had the manager, we made signings, and then we got the structure in place that Cormac says he wants, as in you know there's a yeah, sort of head of recruitment, wherever the title is. So we, we kind of got the manager and the signings before we then got the structure in place to get our philosophy implemented, if you like. So it feels like it's all a bit back to front, and I think it might take a bit longer to get, you know, for the club to get the players that they think Aberdeen should have, notwithstanding the fact that I actually don't think the first eleven's too bad. Although we just touched on there, it makes you think, actually, there's not really much outside of that. Um, and if the first eleven aren't doing it, who do you call on? Right, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit for the people that listen to this show. Gary writes the script for these parts, so he's done us up like a kipper and he's put in this section, Top Dons, question mark. Do you want to have a punt at uh, doing, the, doing the impossible task on, like, on a day like that where the match sponsor has to pick a man of the match? I, I did see that, so when you're listening to this, thanks, Gary. On the assumption that I have to answer that question based on 90 minutes I don't actually know I don't actually know if I can do that it's a hard one isn't it I think yeah I think so I I can't think of anyone when you take the whole match into consideration that was head and shoulders above anyone else or not positively head and shoulders above anyone else (laughs) why don't we just take it in like in half so I thought the first half Marley Watkins again was really good Uh, yep I would agree Watkins was really good in the first half uh, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. So, well, and let's and let's just pretend that the game ended then and we went home. Yes, in a, in a rare move, it's a first half topped on. So to sum up, since the last international break, it's been two wins, two losses, and one draw for the Dons against Dundee, Hibs, Rangers, Hearts, and Motherwell. Graham, what do you think we've learned from the last five games? I think. I don't know if we've learned this. To me, with the, that string of you know the, the three three results, heads to hearts, that demonstrates to me that we have good enough players, certainly in the starting eleven, and maybe that just sort of confirms that. What have we learned? Maybe it's not critical to have Ramsey and McKenzie all the time. You know, we did get some decent results without them. Although I should be absolutely clear, I'd like to see them in the team, but maybe we've got some slightly better options than we maybe thought we had. Again, I don't know if this is a learning. It just sort of confirms that there's still a lot of work to be to be done in terms of, you know, it's basic stuff, isn't it? It's generally picking on the the defence, but it's, 
it's moving away from defenders being surprised that there's a member of the opposition on the shoulder or in the box. You know, they should just be anticipating the fact that someone's going to be there. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, during the international break, they spend a bit more time on that and maybe just try to get guys more familiar with what is expected of them at Aberdeen. So I think we've we've learned that we are capable of going on a little run. We are capable of getting results against what at the time were the top teams that were above us in the table. Strangely, we seem to be struggling against the quote-unquote lesser teams. So there's something not quite right in that. I think uh, what I'm taking out of it is it was obviously a better chunk of the season than the chunk prior before the last international break. So I think there's some signs of encouragement, but uh, I think as we've all mentioned here and probably every fan knows that there's a long way to go before we're watching the Aberdeen that we, we want to be watching. And of course, one game into that uh, that run of fixtures, you know, Dundee, we spoke on this podcast with Tom Watt and we collectively I think felt that it was going to be very difficult for Stephen Glass to turn things around. Where do you think the manager sits now, um, four games later? I think he's in a better position, personally. I think the atmosphere around the club, I mean, if you take Saturday, for example, I know we lost against Motherwell, but in general, you know, where we were sitting, yeah, there's frustrations and moans, there always are, but in general, I thought the atmosphere was positive and behind the team. It could easily have gone the other way, you know, after Dundee, if we'd dropped points and dropped points. So I think he's probably in a little, you know, a better standing with the fans than he was, but it's probably still hovering around about people's tolerance levels based on what we've seen to date. So yeah, things things are better. I think he's demonstrated that there's there's something about him and the team. But we're we're not at the wood yet. Yeah, I think it's a sentiment that's shared across um, Twitter. From what I've seen, positive signs. But yeah, we need to learn how to go about beating teams like Motherwell that come up here to frustrate us. But as you say, um, a positive as well that we've shown some strength, some depth, and maybe an ability to adapt in difficult situations. And we don't, as you say, need to be overly reliant on our on our young players and burn them out very quickly, or you know maybe even worse cause injury. So yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Good signs. A lot of work still to be done. So moving on to the other news from Pataldry this week, uh, for the women's team, it was a double header in SWPL one for Emma Hunter and Gavin beside as they hosted Glasgow city on Wednesday night and then traveled to face Motherwell on Sunday, reigning champions and undefeated so far this season, Glasgow city were in no mood to go lightly on the Dons as they raced into a 5-0 lead by halftime at Glebe Park. The Dons showing good character and resilience to ensure that they didn't concede any more in the second half and did well to maintain fitness with the fully professional Glasgow City side. The trip to Motherwell on Sunday offered the side to build some much-needed confidence and look to get some points back on the board after a torrid run of fixtures as of late. Last season's top scorer Bailey Hutchinson made a welcome return to the Dons' starting lineup. And she broke the offside trap a couple of times early doors, providing encouragement for Aberdeen. But this was rapidly extinguished on five minutes as Carla Boyce popped the ball into an empty net after a rebound from a save by Gilmore fell kindly at her feet. On nine minutes, the home side doubled their advantage. A free kick swung into the box, not dealt with by the Aberdeen defence. Where have we heard that one before? And the ball eventually fell to Chelsea Watson, who stuck her shot past Gilmore. Things went from bad to worse for the Dons as Motherwell made it three on 12 minutes. Boyce grabbing her second once again after a save by Gilmore fell at her feet. 
The Dons grabbed a lifeline on 23 minutes, Bailey Hutchison lofting a fine finish over the head of the Motherwell keeper, and that's how it remained until half time. Aberdeen came out firing at the start of the second half, but it was Motherwell who grabbed a fourth. A ball flashed across the box, finding Boyce who completed her hat trick. The Dons changed shape and brought Fraser and Forrest on for Brown and Strath, and the changes paid off straight away, a fine curling effort from Ogilvy making it 4-2, before Fraser then made it 4-3, finishing neatly from a tight angle, and suddenly it was game on. But as hard as the Dons pushed for an unlikely equaliser, Motherwell stood firm and saw the game out for an important victory. It's another hard week for the side, but they enter the international break knowing that there are some kinder fixtures on the horizon. As for the young team, there was no game this week as the CAS under-18 league match against Hibs was postponed due to COVID in the Hibs ranks. So we'll move straight into Lone Watch. Kevin Hanratty and Tyler Makaita both started for Fort Martin United in their Highland League fixture against Devonvale. And Makaita grabbed Fort Martin second as they ran out 4-1 victors. Elsewhere in the Highland League, Tom Ritchie and Jack McIver started for Huntley as they were beaten 5-2 by Forest Mechanics at Christie Park. Jack Millen again missed out for Brecon City as they saw off Clack by one goal. Connor Barron started with Kieran Nguenya on the bench as Kelty Hearts beat Cowdenbeath 1-0. Barron played the full 90 and Nguenya came off the bench for the final 30 minutes as Kelty maintained their unbeaten record in the League 2. Mark Gallagher came off the bench for Forfer after only 22 minutes as they beat Elgin City 2-1 to push Forfer up in his second spot in League 2. And injury kept Ryan Duncan out of the Peterhead squad once again. Michael Ruth started for Falkirk and played for 62 minutes as they drew 1-1 at home with Alloa Athletic. And finally, Luke Turner kept his place in the starting lineup for Cliftonville as they easily saw Dungannon Swifts by three goals to nil and maintained their spot at the summit of the Northern Irish Premiership. And lastly, in regards to news coming out of Pataldry, we've seen some new images of the... Uh, of the potential new stadium and redevelopment of the beachfront in which of which the stadium will be almost a centerpiece. Bim, what are your thoughts on uh, on what was published? Well, first of all, you know me, I'm the uh, pessimistic one here. So I didn't pay a great deal of attention to it just because I feel like we've been through this, I don't know how long a new stadium has been out there, you know, 10, 15 years. We've got all these images and artists' impressions. We're going to do this, that, and the next thing. So ignoring the the artist impressions in principle redeveloping the beach area I think would be really good for Aberdeen uh, the city I personally would rather have a football stadium in the city I realize the beach is a little bit out of the way but it's kind of where it is now so that that works for me um so if that if it really is going to get a bit of traction this time I'm absolutely all for it keeping keeping people visiting the beach and you know the the pubs and the bars round about hopefully the golf clubs and stuff like that keeping a, a stadium down there absolutely works for me so if they really can make something out of it that would be excellent maybe my only hesitation would be it's just more red tape and bureaucracy if you're getting into bed with the council and then you know what restrictions are they going to try and impose i mean i don't think Anyone listening to this wants a stadium with a running track around it and you know seats so far removed that you can't generate any sort of atmosphere. So I will, yeah, I think we'll we'll watch this space. But if we really do get a new stadium down at the beach and that area gets redeveloped, I, th- I think that'd be absolutely excellent. 
yeah, I think I completely agree. I think um, I quietly accepted the idea of the stadium effectively being in West Hill. Perhaps the fact that I lived in West Hill at the time maybe helped that. But even now, I live in Aberdeen and I still would have been not delighted with it, but accepting probably because I just actually want this to kind of be over and to us just have a new stadium. I've mentioned to guys at my work who are not from Aberdeen that we've been talking for so long about how we have critical as we need to get out of Pataudry. It goes back to the Century DVD, which was like 2002, 2003. And yet here we are, we still haven't actually got a location. As you say, you know, if I could like hand pick a stadium for Aberdeen's new stadium to be, it would be Tynecastle, maybe a little bit bigger, you know, really tight to the pitch, great atmosphere. Not, as you say, you know, a, a multi-purpose stadium, shall we say, where, you know, athletics or I think I even saw someone suggest that rugby could possibly be um, incorporated into into this new stadium. Well, something to keep our eye on. And yeah, we'll just, uh, we'll see what happens with that one. And now we move on to our Fantasy Football Scotland update as we do every week. And we will talk through the ABZFP League. So Graham, how was your week? Pretty gross as usual. 44 points, which isn't very good. Uh, poor choice of captain. I have Harry Cochran in my team, but he's not my captain. If you had been, I'd have probably been invincible, invincible. I didn't leave any points in the bench, so that's good. But uh, yeah, 44 is not very good, which I don't know. Oh, I've gone up in the ABZ league, actually. I'm now 191st. I don't know if I can say the title charge is on, but some sort of charge is on. Right. I mean, for myself, not going to lie, pretty damn good week. 74 points primarily due to the contributions of Kyogo Furuhashi, my skipper for the weekend, and uh, Jota as well. So, uh, yeah, Celtic coming up big for me, not going to lie. Disappointingly again, though, um, 11 points left on the bench. Mugabe, what was I thinking? Why was he not in? And uh, Scott Tanzer, who is like, must be like the best defender for points in the game, and yet I keep leaving him on the bench. Unbelievable stuff. Um, but yeah, myself again, I've I've risen into the, the top 100. So sure. pretty damn happy with that. Gary's not here to discuss his uh, his situation. So let's just go and do it for him. Wow. I'm going to go through his team. Oh, 51 points is better than me, obviously, but it's not that great, is it? Well, it's not great when you've got Mulgrew on minus one, Sean Rooney, who I think is still injured, Paul McGinn and Kevin Nisbet, who, you know, we're not able to play on account of the COVID. And yeah, Ramirez, Ferguson, Benigame, Watt, all pretty inefficient. To be fair, Furuhashi against won the bulk of his points. But if we then consult the league itself, Jack Curran maintains his place at the top of our league, him and his two turkeys. 80 points for the weekend at 824 all in. Callum Reid is second place with 73 points. 814 all in the beach end boys and a new uh, a new arrival in the top three the kingdom of morocco hafid ziri 77 points 796 all in level on points with uh g zamboni and gx silly geese so very competitive at the top end of the league i don't know if you've seen any uh any particularly great names this week oh i'm um... I always just have a wee look around the table for Benny and the Jet, so I can take some consolation with the fact that he has slipped down the table. How did he do this week? 13 points, oh. which is 
I don't even know how it's possible to do that. Let's see, what, what did he do? How has he done that? <laughs> well, he left 10 points on the bench, but still, that's not worked out too well for him. So um, I'm a little bit satisfied at that. Got to say, I've just noticed in 114th position, we might have another sleeper cell, uh, Bully Boys, and that's Boys spelt B-H-O-Y-S. Yeah, I think there needs to be some sort of admin cleanup of this league. You know what? Joe Hart's in goal. It's definitely a Celtic fan. <laughs> 131th position, Cameron Masson. I know you. This is a good shout. Come Considine with me. Don't need to say anything more than that. That is fantastic. So that wraps up part one of this week's show. Join us after the break for our exclusive interview with Stuart Duff. And to play out the first half, here's Birdlaw with their track, What Would Charles and Zogbia Do? You might recognize it. It is, in fact, the title track for our show. And we would like to thank the guys and girls at Birdlaw for letting us use it. You can check out Birdlaw and their discography over at, at Birdlaw Punks. That's P U N X on Twitter. And here's Birdlaw. What would Charles and Zogbia do? Just the restless, nervously compensating for nothing at all From dusters with chalky bricks and unrelenting rest
this episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Maritime Developments Limited, leaders in portable flex lay technology. Did you know that MDL are the only provider of rental pipe play tensioners with a track record above 4.5 metres per unit? Their pioneering TTS4 range includes systems with 5 metres and 5.5 metre track contact length, which are still road transportable, like the rest of their rental equipment range. Pair that with one of MDL's HLS packages for a flexi solution that can be customised to any vessel and available deck space. Get inspired by their innovative systems at maritimedevelopments.com. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast, and we are delighted to bring you the latest in our line of exclusive, in-depth interviews with Don's personalities of past and present. This week, it's a man who was a boyhood Aberdeen fan who made his way to Pataudry when signed from Dundee United by Jimmy Caldwood, and who went on to make 52 appearances for the Dons, scoring one goal, before recently being promoted to be the club's youth phase manager. It's Duff, man. It's Stuart Duff. Stuart Duff, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How's it going? Not too bad, Gary, yourself. Uh, no, thanks for having me along. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, listen, obviously, we're, we're delighted to have you here today. Um, we're looking forward to getting an opportunity to delve into your your career, your time with Aberdeen, and then to get some insight into your your new role with the club, with your club as well. So um, let's get going. So obviously, you were born in Aberdeen, 1982, and was football always your kind of sport of choice? I would say so. Um, like most most youngsters, you know, at that, uh, that time, you know, football was a, a huge thing. You know, we were, you know, I was out every, near enough every night of the, uh, every night of the week, you know, most days, you know, any break times in school, you know, I was playing football, whether it was in concrete or grass, you know, I just got on with it. My mum would have a field day with the, you know, the ripped trousers and stuff he would come home with. But yeah, yeah, it was always something that I kind of enjoyed doing. I never really gave it too much thought uh, as a career moving forward, but no, something I really enjoyed as a youngster. Were you an Aberdeen fan as a youngster? I was, yeah, yeah. Um, I was one of those fans that probably didn't get along to, you know, going to Petordo was such a big occasion for me. Um, I would be predominantly playing most Saturday and Sunday, so it was very rare that I actually did get a go along. And when it was, it was, you know, it was a spectacle more than anything. And, you know, it was a huge, huge occasion for me, you know, from myself and my dad and my dad's friend Walter would go along. And, you know, I remember just being in awe of the stadium, the size of it, the... You know, the players at that time, you know, Willie Miller, um, guys like that coming through. So it was just, uh, it was a really good experience when I did get to go along. But no, lifelong Aberdeen fan and uh, still to this day. That's, that's good. It's not always easy, but it's good to stick with it. <laughs> so given that you're pretty similar ages to, well, certainly Gary and I, just wondering who your heroes were, Don's wise, when you were younger. Um, for me, the main one that stu- well, sticks out would probably be Jim Bett. Um, I just like, the kind of way he went about things, the way he played, you know, I thought he had kind of a continental style of play. Um, it wasn't like a typical f- Scottish footballer, you know, he had a bit of, a bit of flair, a bit of air and grace about him. And he was a very humble man. I was really fortunate enough to to play with his son um, in juvenile football later in the year. So I actually got the opportunity to, to meet him most weeks, which, uh, you know, looking at this guy in a field, you know, from a distance away and then being able to have conversations with him was huge for me. And um, he would be the main one that kind of stood out for me. Alex McLeish would be another one that, you know, just leadership leadership qualities. 
Um, just all I get get around him, you know. I think his record speaks for himself. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I think um, anyone who's had the opportunity to meet or play with these guys would probably be saying the same thing. Um, I was just wondering, can you remember the first match that you actually attended at, Audrey? Um, the one that sticks out in my memory, just for the, for the for the main one, um, as you probably you know getting on a bit, I've got memory like a sieve. So um, what it is, it was the Torino game. So my dad had actually won tickets through his cricket club, Manifield Cricket Club, to actually go to Torino. And it just worked out that we couldn't get, I couldn't get time off school, my dad couldn't get time off work. So I actually swapped the tickets for the, for the home leg. Um, obviously, Lee Richardson scores a 25, 35-yard you know, strike from distance and a half volley. And I remember being in the corner of the south stand and that, for me, just stuck out. And that's that's a memory I'll always live with me, just the, just the sheer bounce that we had on. Um, in that corner, just being a young, you know, 13, 14 year old lad and being able to go along with my dad and see such a great goal and such a great occasion, you know, that it was packed to the rafters and uh, it was just a special night. Yeah, I remember it well. It was a, it was a good one, that one. Yeah. Yeah, it was just uh, like everything. It was it was the whole occasion built up to, you know, Torino at that time, you know, very, you know, well-established Italian club and, you know, to, to go toe-to-toe to with them uh, away and at home, it was, it was just fantastic and, that goal, you know, merited to win any game, and you know, it was just fantastic to actually see it in the flesh. And like I said, the bounce after it was, it was the best thing. Fast forward, you find your way into the Dundee United youth setup, uh, being signed from their Aberdeen coaching centre. At this time, and I guess even still to present day, um, United have done a great job of picking up players from Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire. I'm thinking the likes of, you know, Stuart Armstrong, Ryan Gold. Was there any chat about Aberdeen looking at you at this time? No, there wasn't. Um, at that time, you tended to find that Aberdeen looked probably more out with. That's that's certainly changed as as you know today. Currently, you know they're trying to look from within and trying to recruit from Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire, you know, in the surrounding areas. But at that time, it was more guys from Glasgow, Edinburgh. You know, they commute them up in bus loads and put them in digs. And for whatever reason, at that moment in time, you know, I was never ever uh, asked to go along to Aberdeen. Which, looking back, you know, it's not something I regret or have any you know, bad feeling too. It's just the way it worked out. And I found myself at Dundee United, which, which is a, a club, as you're probably fully aware, that they've got a really good history of producing young players and giving them opportunities. Um, albeit, if they go on and have a career, it's entirely in their hands after that. But they almost had a conveyor belt of younger players. So that was the, the thinking behind that. So it was a no-brainer, really. Yeah, excellent. So can you just talk to us about your time in the, in the United Youth setup in terms of, you know, players that mentored you or coaches that were, you know, very... Important in your development as a player? Yeah, well, for me, you know, my dad, my dad Ernie had said, you know, my mum, Barbara had said, you know, I, they were adamant that I had to stay on at school till sixth year, which was, you know, looking back at a really good bit of advice because, you know, the pitfalls of professional football, and there's a small percentage actually do go and make it all the way through. And it was quite difficult to begin with because I was only Aberdeen player down there from Aberdeen in a dressing room fully Ouija's, as we'll say. Um, so it was, it was, a, it was a bit of an eye opener, but. Um, it took me a little bit of time to settle there and get used to the surroundings, the digs. But we, I was really fortunate to have two unbelievable legends, you know, throughout football in Morris Malpass and Terry Butcher as my youth team coaches. So you probably didn't give them as much, you know, you didn't realise, you know, the career that they'd had themselves. So until, you know, you did a bit of research into them, how, you know, we go out to tournaments in England and you'd see how Terry was held in such high regard, England captain, World Cups, etc., and obviously Morris, you know, record appearance for Dundee United, you know, 
Scotland caps galore. So uh, I was really fortunate with those two, you know, very good mentors, give you a very good grounding. By all means, it wasn't easy. It was very harsh at times, but, you know, two fantastic guys that I still, to this day, owe a lot to. And just coming through that United youth setup, was there any other kind of players alongside you, Stuart, that, that kind of made it through to the first team and, and the professional ranks? There was, but if you do, if you if you look at this from a kind of mathematical number, it's 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 probably similar to these days. Now we had a squad of twenty, and out of my squad of twenty, I was the only one that kind of went on to sustain a career. With a guy in the year below Jamie McCunney, mm-hmm. Mark Wilson, who, who stepped into the squad, we had um, David McCracken in the year above. So it's quite a small minority um, for whatever reason. There can be injury, there can be personal things at home. Guys just can't handle that environment. But fortunately for me, it worked out. But um, it can be a, a dog-eat-dog kind of, kind of industry. And it's a short-lived career, but I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity quite young um, and I just grasped it. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable just how small that percentage really is because I even remember it still from like my juvenile days looking at my team there was a good six or seven eventually who went on to sign at professional clubs, but out of them, only one ever made it into the professional ranks. And like you say, even going through those names, I remember it well. There's only a year difference between you and I, and I remember at that period of time that United were picking up all the top players around Aberdeen, Aberdeenshire. And even then, like I say, it was one or two, I think you were talking about who ended up making it through. It's quite remarkable just how difficult it, it was and still continues to be. But um, fast forward also then to December, 2001 and it's a uh, former Aberdeen manager Alex Smith who hands you your first team debut for United in a league match away at Kilmarnock being deployed as a right wing back United end up losing that game 2-0 but you played for 67 minutes do you remember much about that game and were you kind of given much notice in advance you were going to get the nod and, and get a start I remember it like it was yesterday to be honest um, I wasn't given any notice whatsoever so um, it was a funny story with Alex Smith I used to have to kind of do the kit for Alex Smith, John Blackley, Morris Malpass. So they were all in the, the staff dressing room and, you know, getting changed and in the buff and the shower in the bath. And I'm just a young boy, you know, never seen anything like this before in my life. And one day I plucked up the courage to actually say, Alex Smith, you know, why you were Aberdeen manager? You know, you lived up the road in Manifield, uh, just up the road from my parents. And kind of conversation started flowing. Two weeks later, they needed an extra body in training. So that's how I found myself within the first team uh, training. Um, I was always one that go do as much as I can to learn from the pros. So I would go every home and away game and lay out the kit and do the hampers and just all the all the rubbish work. To be honest, just to gain that experience and I had you know a tough pre-match with the guys and that day I remember because I had a double pre-match like fish and beans and chicken and beans and chicken and pasta and just a young boy sitting at the front of the team meeting at the beginning and the flip chart goes over and you see that and you see your name and you're like. Oh no, my heart <laughs> almost came out my chest. And no, the guys round about were brilliant. You know, we had Billy, Billy Dodds, um, I think Derek McInnes was there at that time. Morris, obviously, there was loads of experienced, Craig Easton, Stephen Thompson, loads of experienced guys that kind of put their arm around. And uh, Alex was brilliant, you know. And, you know, I saw him a few years ago in the coaching badge and license. And again, another one I owe a lot to, but a fantastic man, great manager, and, you know, somebody I'm very, uh, very in awe of when I, even when I do still meet him and I owe a lot too but uh, really good game it was up against Stevie Murray who was also making his debut for Kilmarnock he was a tricky winger that kind of wanted to have a half decent career as well but um, no a fantastic occasion for me the only disappointing thing it was too late in the day for my parents to come down to Kilmarnock that would be the only sad point but no great day 
following on from that, uh, it's March 2002 before you make your, your next appearance uh, trip to Tynecastle with United running out 2-1 winners where you play the whole 90 minutes actually and then following on from that match making appearances right through to the end of the campaign and collecting the SPL Young Player of the Month award for April uh, I think you, I've got down here you make nine appearances in total as United finished in eighth at the end of that campaign did you start to get a feeling that maybe you were sort of part of the first team squad and this is your you know your big break and you're starting to make it probably not if I'm being honest because it's very easy for probably younger players, even to this day, to break into a first team, make two appearances and, you know, for whatever reason, seem to think that they've kind of made it. Um, I always felt that, you know, probably two seasons of playing regular first team football, then I'd be regarded as a first team player. Um, I'm sure the guys that I trained with didn't look at it that way, but I had kind of that inner drive to prove to myself and prove to them day in, day out that I, you know, I deserved the right to be in that dressing room, I deserved the right to play. Um, on that pitch alongside them so it was never something that I took for granted and it kind of drove them on especially in the early years um, yes of course there comes a time where you do feel fully integrated into that squad but as a young guy you're just just setting out to prove prove people you know what you can do you know you look at like say Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie just now at Aberdeen prime example you know I'm sure if you asked them the same question they would probably have the same answer they're just enjoying their football going out week in week out and doing the best that they can and playing with no fear. And you can see that in their performances. Come the 2002-2003 season, at this point you are now you know, officially definitely part of the United squad. You made 38 appearances across all competitions. Um, Alex Smith was sacked from United in October 2002, um, eventually to be replaced by Ian McCall. You've just made reference to your admiration and we've spoken to a number of Aberdeen players that played under Alex Smith and it sounds like he was revered um, as a manager. Can you just tell us a little bit more in depth about what it was that made him such a figure of respect amongst, you know, yourself and the players that have, that have played for him um, in the past? Yeah, I think, you know, at that moment in time, you had Alex Smith, um, John Blackley, you know, Hibbs legend, and obviously you had the, the big man upstairs, obviously he's, he's passed away now, Jim McLean, who was the chairman at that time. So you had three very, very big um, characters there, you know, and you were in all of them. Yeah, they had that fear factor, but yet you had that respect for them, um, especially with Alex Smith. He was very good man-manager. He was unbelievable as a man-manager. See, if you're a young player coming through, and that's something I've probably hoping to take into my coaching kind of criteria is to, to be a good man-manager. The rest will take care of itself. You know, you're there for a reason because you've got ability and, you know, you've got a bit about you. It's then trying to get the most out of the rest of the guys. But he was just... He was just a very, very approachable manager, and, you know, especially for a younger player. And I think if you asked anybody that's been given a debut by Alex Smith, they would probably all say the same thing, that he was very approachable and, you know, accepting of the challenges of a young player when they do go into first team. But he did his best to protect us when he could, you know, whether it's from the press or any difficult questions or whatever it may be. Um, just a fantastic man. And, you know, I think he's enjoying his retirement in Australia just now. And like I said, I... I got the chance to see him for the first time in a lot of years at the SFAA licence and, you know, I made, made a point of beelining across the pitch to just thank him for, for everything that he did for me as a younger player because, unfortunately, I didn't get that opportunity because he left. Um, it's not it's not very often the managers, at that moment in time, managers would just leave and that'd be that. He'd maybe, you know, there wasn't mobile phones and all that carry on. 
Uh, whereas now, you know, a lot of managers keep in touch with players. But no, a fantastic man. Um, very, you know, like you say, very revered across the coaching curriculum of Scotland. And, you know, he's, he's definitely brought a lot of good things to Scottish football in the whole. You just talked about the big man. Um, what was your kind of relationship like with Jim McLean? Did you have much of one with them? And you must have a few stories about Jim McLean for us. <laughs> yeah, it was just that fear factor. So I don't know whether you've been into Tanadice. His, um, his office would be directly above the stairs. So you'd have to pass out on your way to the kitchen every day. Um, put it this way, if the door was open, he was just told off for half an hour until it was closed. Um, he just that fear factor, just that aura about him. And you knew ex- exactly what you were getting from him. And it was one of those, you, you wouldn't see him day to day and he would just pop up and he had a sliding kitchen, a sliding door that would lead to the kitchen and you know, ask for tea and biscuits through. And if he caught your eye line, he'd be like, right, you son, how'd you go on at the weekend? And I would, he would be writing about you. He would take an interest. He would know all the results. He'd know your name. But he would he would demand that respect. But once you kind of broke into that first team and proved kind of your ability to him, he was he was brilliant. He was brilliant with me and pulled me aside a few times and said, "Listen, you know, regarding agents, as a younger player, you know, if there's anything like that, I need advice on or moving house, um, just anything." He was he was like, "Listen, son, I'll try and help you out, and anything you need, just my office is always there." Um, but you had that level of respect for him. Ruthless man, like demanded the highest standards and that's that's something that I'll always take with me is this, the standards that were kept at Dungeon at that moment in time and um, he was he was the catalyst for everything yeah and I guess in a way you're probably really fortunate to have been able to catch that level of time as well with him I suppose because yeah. there's you know for a lot of people you know Jim McLean and Alex Ferguson are the two you know the two best managers that Scotland's ever produced and it's probably a bit taboo to say this on an Aberdeen podcast but um it's probably fair to say that Jim McLean's United team probably, you know, deserved to win a little bit more than they did. They just were unfortunate they came up against an Aberdeen side for much of those years. So, but moving into the next campaign, obviously, a penis is kind of drop off you a little bit in the 2003-04 campaign, uh, 20 across all competitions. You spent, it looked like, more time kind of on the bench more than anything yeah. else. Was that a case of, like, Ian McCall just not fancying you as a player or was it injuries or...? Um, it, it, it's mostly down to, you'll probably find this at most clubs, is a new manager will come in, he'll have an idea of the team already, so he's probably watched the team and the players that he'd like to bring in. Um, he had came from Falkirk, who didn't come up because obviously Brock Phil was um, non-seating, so I think that was the issue, they didn't come up that year, they won the championship, but, um, and he'd done very well with them, Dundee United had marked him out as their man, and he ended up taking four or five players and probably you know, from Falkirk, Lee Miller, Colin Samuel, Mark Kerr, uh, straight in, and you're not going to sign players and not play them. So that's basically where I found myself. And it wasn't until probably later in the year that you kind of realised what what benefit I could bring to the team and, you know, what qualities I did have. But in all fairness, he, he stuck with the players that he'd signed at that moment in time, which is fair enough. But uh, I, McCall, was, uh, he was a character. He was he was lively, but yeah, yeah one of those... So you're part of the Scotland under 21 setup as well during this uh, point in your career and part of the squad that just missed out on qualifying for the 2004 European Championships, uh, missing out in a playoff to Croatia 2-1 on aggregate. You ended up with 10 caps at under 21 level for Scotland. Can you just talk to us about the kind of pride of being selected to represent your country, no matter what age level that's at? Yeah, it's huge. Um, I think it's, well, I'm not being arrogant, I think it's... Uh, Quite a, quite a bit more than 10. I don't know for what reason it's it's 10, but I think it's closer to the, the 20 mark. We played, you know, multiple teams and 
for me, it was just one of the biggest honours. I think as a younger player coming through, it wasn't too far after um, I'd kind of broken into the Dinger United team and settled in. Um, Rainer Bonhoff and Bertie Volks were manager and assistant manager. And yeah, he was another man that I think if you asked the likes of Sean Maloney, Darren Fletcher, John Kennedy, Michael Stewart, you know, some fantastic players we had in that squad that they would say that Rainer Bonhoff was excellent. Again, man manager. It wasn't so much the tactical stuff on the field, but for me, it was a huge honour. And, you know, to get big, you know, Scotland suit, the bag, the kit to put on the strip. And, you know, it's not something I actually think, you know, I've sat back since I've retired and really thought about, but I'm sure come time I'll sit back and be really, really, you know, back with fond memories and be very proud. But um, it's, a, it's the pinnacle of a guy's careers, you know, representing a country, regardless of what age. Um, unfortunately, I didn't make the, the, full, the full cap, but... You know, I'm 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 quite happy. I can sleep sleep well at night knowing that I represent the twenty ones and stuff. And it was a great experience playing some fantastic teams. So yeah. And moving forward into the 2004-5 season, you as you say, you've shown your quality to Ian McCall and you're you're back in the first team picture, making 32 appearances across all competitions. And you score your first professional goals actually. Um, the first of that three coming in a hotly contested Dundee Derby as you got the opener in a 2-2 draw at Tannadice. Um, what can you remember about that goal itself? And, I mean, I guess there's no better place, especially as a Dundee United player, to get your first goal than uh, than one of those derby games. Yeah, they, they, you know, probably out with, you know, the, the Dundee, you know, Aberdeen game, Celtic Rangers. Dundee was the, the big one. You know, you would look, look forward to that in the fixtures, um, especially at that moment in time they were in the league. Um, I was never, ever the, the biggest goal scorer. Um, so that's that. That's for sure. But any goals that I did have are of quite good importance, and you know, quite quite big games. So I enjoyed that one. I remember just coming across and just hitting it in. I think right foot under the goalkeeper and kind of running away in front of the Dundee fans to try and wind them up a bit. Um, <laughs> but no, I just really good experience, and it's probably something that I could have added a lot more to my game is is goals. But I took as much joy as in assists, if I'm being honest, rather than uh, goals. Know if I'd set up a, a good way to through ball, but those games were I electric, like dry mouth, cotton mouth. It was just 100 mile an hour, grit determination from both sides. And Dundee had a very good side at that time, you know, Kanija, um, Beto up front, you know, the, a lot of the Italian guys over Ravenelli, you know, a lot of these guys. So it was up against good opposition, always tasty games, and it was never shy of a red card or two. So, so following on from that, you signed a new three year deal. Uh, with Dundee United and you became a consistent performer over the next couple of campaigns. I think you had 33 and then 33 appearances over the 2005-6-7 season. Over that period, uh, I suppose fairly inauspicious times for for United as the manager's hot seat was filled by Ian McCall, Gordon Chisholm, Billy Dodds, Craig Brewster and Craig Levine in relatively quick succession. But we were fortunate enough to speak to Tommy Hoban recently and he gave us some insight into playing at Watford where the managers were basically on a revolving door policy, they were constantly changing. How did you manage to deal with that constant turmoil when there's not really any consistency around, the, you know, the, the management team? I could sit here and say, you know, it's an it's an opportunity. Each manager comes in, um, like I said, they've probably got a rough understanding of the squad that he's inheriting. However, it is difficult and it doesn't give you that fluency of that that kind of consistency, like you say, to to perform week in, week out, because as a whole, you know, you're hearing different tactics, new managers want to come in and play a certain style, 
um, different formation. You know, a lot of things can change, and the more turnover you've got, the the harder it is. I probably think you know you need to give coaches time, managers time to kind of input their philosophy into a club. Um, and I think at Dundee United, you highlighted that you know six or seven managers within probably a two three year period. It was incredible, and you you try to learn from each and every one of them. Try to change your game a little bit. Like I said, it could be formation or tactics or whatever it may be. So it is, it is very difficult. And I think uh, that moment in time, Dungeon United, if they just stuck with who they thought was the best man and just ridden it out, then there would have been okay. And they would have seen the benefits in the long term with that. But uh, it's, it's very difficult psychologically as well because you're taking in countless, vast amounts of information and try to implement that. And you're, it's getting changed every so often. So you're programming your mind to play a certain style and, you know, that's getting flipped around in three to six months um, and basically start again. So, uh, But that's what you get paid for as a professional is to be able to handle those situations at the end of the day. And um, that's that's industry we're in. Just touching on that, Stuart, really quickly, because it's something that people have spoken about a lot recently with obviously Stephen Glass coming in at Aberdeen. Um, can you just give some insight to supporters just around how difficult it actually is and how much time it can take for if a new man comes in and he's got a completely different way of how he wants to play football and how he wants to set his team up, just how much time that can actually take sometimes to really bed in and really get going? Yeah, you tend to find that most managers that come in will, you know, they'll hit a little bit of purple patch. You'll see an automatic, you know, change of style, whether it's uh, more attacking, more, you know, or they're better defensively. I think, you know, if you're a realist and a real true football fan, you understand the game to a certain level. You have to be open-minded to it. It's going to take time. You're going to have, you know, peaks and troughs all the way through. It's never going to be plain sailing. Um, you know, any Aberdeen fan knowing that, you know, we did have some joy under Derek McInnes. You know, he, he did well to stabilise the club, taking us to cup finals, etc., like that. And of course, it's going to take time for, for Stephen Glenn to implement, you know, his his playing style, he's, he's taken in a, almost a whole new squad. It takes time for players to gel in. And I'm at the belief of, you know, instead of getting on the manager's back and criticising every silly comment that you see in here, there and everywhere, and whether that's ex-pundits or ex-players that played for the club, but that infuriates me. Why not come out and, you know, show support? Because regardless of how the team, they think the team are doing, it's vitally important that we get behind the team if you know, even if you think they're they're doing well or rubbish, because um, I know come time that the work that's put in at each club, whether that's Stephen Glass or you know under my time with managers, the the work that goes into implementing philosophies and their styles is you know multiple hours a day, you know at, on it all the time. Analysis, scouting, software, taking interest in the academy. There's so many factors to it, so it's 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 really important that I, I get the fans' frustration at times, but at the end of the day, you're an Aberdeen fan and it's vitally important you stand by the club through thick and thin. It'd be, it'd be lovely to have 600 million in the bank and be able to go and spend, you know, whatever amount in players. It's, it's really frustrating, um, some of the stuff that you have read. So I was really, really happy for, for Stephen and the coaching staff to, to get that result of the weekend and almost shut a few people up because... Um, it's just a result that they needed and they were more than capable of doing it. And, you know, I think if you look at the facts and the figures, I think Dave Cormack, uh, the chairman's touched on it already and you look at facts and figures, they're not a million miles off. It's just those um, finer details, whether it's defensively or offensively. So it does take time. I know it's frustrating, but 
I would love to say here and I could click my fingers and everything would be perfect, but that's that's end of saber end. You know, other clubs are evolving, so it's up up for us to stay ahead of the game. And you know, I think that the brand of football that he's that Stephen's trying to implement is is that you can see signs of it and it's there. And when it does come to fruition, I think uh, we're in for a a nice a nice a nice period. So as Graham's mentioned, the others inconsistency in the management at United, but Craig Levine does come in. He does stabilise things. Uh, so he's in charge at United for your final season. Um, you made a total of nine appearances um, in the first period with your final United appearance coming in a 2-1 defeat to Gretna in the league. Uh, a United side that featured a number of future Aberdeen players, including yourself, Willow Flood, Barry Robson and Mark Kerr. Younger listeners also are going to be listening, checking right now who the hell Gretna are and where they are in the Scottish League right now. <laughs> if I remember rightly, that was probably my worst game ever as a football player. <laughs> um, I ended up playing left back. Oh, it was murder, murder. So it was one of those where you want the ground to swallow you up. I'd been deployed at left back and I've never ever played there and just had an absolute shocker, shocker. Was that um, was that at Tannadice or at Fir Park? That would have been at Tannadice. Well, that, that game specifically I'm talking about was at Tannadice. Um, so yeah, come to our understanding, the 17th of January, 2008, Craig Levine advises yourself that you are surplus to requirements United and you find yourself released from United after making a total of 171 appearances, scoring four goals. What reasons did Craig Levine give you for deciding your time was up at United? Was it just a case of, as you say, new manager, you know, his his vision of players and a vision of style and maybe you just didn't fit into that? Um, to be honest, I had quite a good relationship with Craig Levine. Um, he was probably the first manager that I'd worked under that was really huge into the analysis side of things, um, pre and post game. So that was that was a, another great learning experience for me. And um, I just call it kind of, you know, for whatever the way it comes about is, you know, your agents or you know, you hear that Aberdeen are potentially interested in you, and it's literally very. It happened so quickly. I had the chat with the manager, said, listen, I know you're from Aberdeen, I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, I can't guarantee you the game time here. However, if you decide to stay here, you can fight and fight for your position by all means. But I think for you, right now where you are, Stuart, it's 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 a logical step, a good logical step to, to go back to Aberdeen. I know how you know you're a big Aberdeen fan, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a no-brainer for me and came about quite quickly. Um there wasn't that much discussions to be had, and you know, it left in very good terms with Dundee United. And you just touched on there. So obviously Jimmy Caldwood gives you the opportunity to to join Aberdeen and you, you sign up on a short-term deal um, to the end of that season. What were your first impressions of Jimmy Caldwood and, and Jimmy Nicol? And um, put it into context for us, because we're all Aberdeen fans on the call. Um, how delighted were you to get the chance to sign for, for Aberdeen? Yeah, for me, it was it was a total no-brainer. Um, there was probably a lot of anxiousness and nervousness, I'm being honest, knowing that, and I actually found later in time that being a, a local player for playing for Aberdeen, the probably demands on you, you felt a lot more. I don't know whether you cared about it a bit more, but you did feel that pressure. You know, it's a big, big club. Um, but Jimmy, both Jimmys were absolutely, you know, brilliant, you know, really good characters, personalities. Jimmy was the kind of glue, the go-between between the first team and the management staff. Um, and obviously Jimmy Calder would, you know, he'd, he'd be having a sunbed and then come out and take your drills. Um, <laughs> no, Jimmy, you know, I think he's... He's been, he's been had a bit of an illness the last few years, but I think he was another one that probably stabilised the club really well and kind of got Aberdeen, give Aberdeen a glimpse of kind of where where they should be, you know, into Europe most most years. Um, 
doing quite well in the cups to a degree. I'll take Queen of the South out of that. And um <laughs> We'll yeah, come on just, to that one. Nah, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's a good one to miss, actually. Um, but no, it, it was a no-brainer for me. It's you know, it's something I look back on, you know, really fondly and really proud, you know, for my parents, you know, mum and dad and my brother and my sister and everybody associated with me. It's, it's something I can look back on and say that I've actually done it. And that it's probably more so the people that come up to me now and say, you know, you've done what kind of our dreams, you know, fans or whoever it may be. And I've got, got a good rapport with Aberdeen. The, the, the fans and the punters and stuff and I know how much they care about their club and what they want is to see grown homegrown Aberdeen talent playing in the first team and thankfully just now in my role it's it's we're on the we're on the road to that. Yeah absolutely. Was there always an understanding as well that you know if all went well um you'd you'd be offered a longer term deal? Yeah that, that came about quite quickly if I'm being honest. Um I know that it said talk about getting released in uh, in the summer but it was literally within a month that an offer was on the table. So again, it was a no-brainer. And coming up to the summer, you know, you've seen all these reports about things in the press. And at that moment in time, there wasn't, again, the level of social media that there is now. So it was basically the Sun newspaper and the Daily Record. You know, you used to read your scores in it and see how crap you were at the weekend. But no, that's where, I don't know how some of these reporters got, you know, got wind of some of these stories. But a lot of them were factual, of course. But at the same time, a lot of it was just, rubbish just bump so um, no the deal was in place well before the summer so I was more than happy to sign it then your debut for Aberdeen comes very soon after it's a home game against Hearts um, you start on the bench and you're maybe taken into action a little bit earlier than expected Scott Severin goes off injured and you make your debut half 30 minutes into the game can you remember much about the game or is that one that just flies right by <laughs> again it's another one that I, yeah, I can remember it alright so you know i Came on quite early. I didn't expect to play. You know, I hadn't played a lot of football. And I remember I had a ball over the top of my head and I tried to put my foot out to, to take it under. And it's came off the bottom, like off my laces and actually played in Christian Nadi, who's ran through and scored. So that wasn't the best start, to be honest. So, uh, but after that, you know, the fans, the fans were actually really encouraging, which was the best thing. And the gaffer came in after and says, no, you've not played much football. You've come in, you've still looked to get on the ball. Albeit, you know, you've you've made a mistake that's led to a goal. However, you need to have a bit of charisma and a bit of character about you to come back from that because it's too easy to turn you just go in your shell and just crumble. Um, there are going to be those demands. You know, everybody makes mistakes, and it's about how you learn from that. As I recall as well, you nearly scored actually, didn't you? Second half, there was a wee yeah. shot volley which nearly caught the keeper off guard. Yeah, that would have been uh, that would have been sweet to if that yeah. had been just to. You know, you want to go into a club and you know set a stall out from the the first go, and you know for that to happen, it's it's already challenging. But I just adds to it. But no, I I never felt that it was going to put any undue pressure on myself, and it would have been great to get that goal, but not to be. Following on from that, you get your first start uh, the following week, the one 0 victory over Hamilton in the Scottish Cup, before you missed out, and I'm assuming you were probably cup tied when you missed out in the four one semi defeat to Dundee United down at Tynecastle. Yeah, I was uh, cup, cup tied to cup tied for those. I was also cup tied in Europe uh, because I played for Dundee United earlier that year. I missed out on some of the European nights with Aberdeen, uh, Bayern Munich being the main one with Josh Walker and Shawnee um, getting the goals. I think it was, but yeah, um, just disappointing. But at the same time, those are the types of games you want to be involved in. But at that, you know, just the way it worked out, I'd already played earlier in the year for Dundee United. But um, yeah. Yeah, that well, that's answered my next question. I was going to, I was going to talk about Bayern Munich, and I wondered if you hadn't been registered, but it hadn't occurred to me that you were cup tied 
in Europe as well. So given that you had to miss out on that, uh, can you maybe just tell us a little bit of what the atmosphere around the club was like ahead of both of those ties, given that you weren't playing, but obviously being being a player and, and in around the squad? Yeah, it was, you know, obviously Aberdeen are a big club, you know, Bayern Munich, you know, they're in the upper echelons of European football, you know, a strong history. And, you know, I think everybody reverted back to the, the 80s when they played each other in the, the European Cups and, you know, those great nights. And I think it was one of those nights as well. And it was a game where you would think with it being Bayern Munich and all the superstars that they had that we'd go into a bit daunted, but the guys were <laughs> so up for it. It was incredible. It was almost just playing like Celtic or Rangers, you know, whoever it may be. The guys were fully on it, really focused. Of course, it was going to be difficult in the Bayern Arena. It was, it was going to be tough over there, but I think at Aberdeen, they showed what they were capable of. And I think with the crowd behind Aberdeen, they were, you know, it's, it's a cliche. Everyone says 12th man, but you'd be amazed the support and what it can actually do uh, subconsciously for players and, you know, never ever take that for granted. So this is what I mean about like fans getting on the, the team's back at certain times. Yes, there'll be moans and groans, but if it, if that can be turned around into some positivity, you'd be amazed at the effects that that actually has. Um, and that was just one of those nights and we're driven on by the fans and the quality we had in the squad at that, you know, at that time. Yeah, I think for Aberdeen fans of a certain generation um, who missed out on the kind of early 80s and all that kind of stuff, I think that Copenhagen and Bayern Munich in that European campaign are up there for atmosphere. Um, they are, like for me, that's my Bayern Munich of 83, those two games. It was unreal. And um, it's funny, actually, just before you joined us, Stuart, um, we were talking about just actually how the atmosphere yesterday, I think, actually helped um, at Pataudry as well. So we're recording this uh, yeah. the day after the Hibs game. And I felt that actually even like the Red Shed helped a little bit yesterday. I felt that it was one of those games that last season, well, not last season was COVID, but a couple of seasons ago with fans spread across the ground with the runner form we've been on, it could be quite easy for there to be no atmosphere and it just be very flat. And I felt that yesterday, the kind of it felt like the fans and the team kind of fed off each other a wee bit. Um, and it goes a long way. It's incredible how much that can, that yeah. can influence games. Looking back to that, so you kind of started to make a number of sporadic appearances uh, for Aberdeen that season as the season kind of began to flounder a little bit, um, although you do make the subs bench for the uh, infamous Scottish Cup semi-final against Queen of the South. Now, you didn't go on the pitch that day, um, so you're you're forgiven for this one. <laughs> but, um, but what was it like watching that game from the sidelines? Um, you're an Aberdeen fan as well, so you know it, it maybe hits harder from that perspective. And what was the reaction of players and management in the dressing room like after that game? Disbelief, um, a real, real knock-on effect from, you know, real low confidence, taking that, um, you know, you're asking me what I thought of the game. I could tell you what I thought of the back seat that was ducking under, trying to watch it, because it was, ah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. It's one of those times where you, as a player, you, obviously you want to play every game, you want to get on, but it's one of those where you're like, oh my goodness, do I really want to go on here? Because this is, this is horrendous, you know, and I'll be associated with this, but, Again, it's a team game at the end of the day. And, you know, if I'd been doing my job correctly, I would have been starting the game. So that's the way I look at it now. But yeah, it was just one of those, a real disappointment. I think if you look at that fixture on paper at that moment in time, you would have, you would have fancied Aberdeen. Whether we went into that with a an air of arrogance or an air of, um, you know, it's, it's going to be an easier game than it was, then I can't put my finger on the reason behind that. But credit Queen of the South that day, you know, came out and, you know, the Scottish Cup is known for the, the upsets it causes, and that's probably one of the biggest ones for, for me as an Aberdeen fan as well. It sticks out. Um, it's just unfortunate that the way they, they panned out, but it took us a couple of weeks to actually recover from that one because it was psychologically a big, big blow 
Um, just confident, you know, took a lot of the confidence out of the squad. And I think the management staff really felt that one because they saw that as an opportunity to kind of go on. And I think Queen of South pushed Rangers, was it, in the final? Uh, yeah. Um, very, very close. Uh, they show it in BBC repeat sometimes. And I think if Aberdeen had got into the final, then potentially our name could have been on that because Rangers were there for the taking that day. Yeah, they absolutely work. I mean, obviously we beat Rangers the week before, two weeks before the last yeah. day of the season. Um, Rangers were out on their feet um, and then they still had the UEFA Cup final to play in Manchester. Yeah. Um, for me, it's always one of those what-ifs that, that, that season in a way because after getting through the Celtic replay, um, it was kind of almost like name on the trophy type stuff and, and obviously it didn't quite work out. Just touching back on it, what was the two Jimmy's reaction like in the dressing room after that? Disbelief. The, um, disbelief. I, th- I think they took a moment to kind of compose themselves and then, you know, they speak about this, the hairdryer sort of treatment, you know, there is a time and a place for that. And that was the time and the place for that. You know, we can be under any illusions that that was unacceptable for Aberdeen Football Club. It's as simple as that. Even to this day, it, it's still an unacceptable result. Um, however, we move forward and it, it it's very easy to dwell on that. But I think the guys did a lot of soul searching after that within the squad and knew that they not only let themselves down, the, the travel and support, you know, their family, just everything, the whole club in general, uh, we would let everybody down and um, it was a real sore one to take, but we kind of, that old saying, you know, you need to dust yourself down and kind of on to the next one and um, it's a missed opportunity, that's for sure. Yeah, we've spoken to a number of uh, players that have lost cup finals to Rangers and Celtic and, you know, they always talk about missed opportunities and I think that's something that we've always uh, held in the back of our heads when it comes to that defeat. Um, like Gary said, the season was rounded off with a, a 2-0 home victory over Rangers, which uh, ultimately helped Celtic uh, clinch the title that evening. Uh, goals from Lee Miller and Darren Mackey, to the best of my uh, recollection. You yourself, at the end of the game, you're on the receiving end of an absolutely shocking challenge from one uh, Nacho <laughs> Novo, seeing him get a straight red. Um as a professional player, what's going through your mind when you see someone launching himself into a tackle like that, pretty much looking like he's going doing it to inflict damage and nothing else? Yeah, I've, I remember that evening, you know, really fondly actually, because again, it was an evening game um, under the lights of Bitaudry. It was just a fantastic kind of all round display. Defensively, we were solid. Offensively, you know, we were creating issues to Rangers, you know, got 2 0 up. And you could see they were frustrating and the new how big a game it was for them um, in regards to the title race with Celtic. Uh, I had a feeling that Nacho was coming over. So, and I remember just taking a touch and sliding in. I thought, I'm going to make this first. And I knew that my momentum was going to take me into him anyway. Um, he then decided to obviously raise his leg and stamp it down on my knee. Um, I'll be honest, it wasn't the sorest one. But it's one of those where you know if, you'll make a little bit more of that, then it's chances are that he's going to be a red. And it was because it was at the, if it was an ankle or something like that, you could get, you could get by it. But it was actually quite a nasty tackle and it could have been more serious. But I think a red car was the right decision. And I think the Aberdeen fans enjoyed him walking off at the end as well. Always, always. Yeah, a good reception, <laughs> as far as I can recall. <laughs> um, so ultimately, you make a total of 11 appearances during that initial six-month spell. And I guess I'm I'm saying you were then rewarded with a two-year deal, but obviously, as you've discussed, that was all wrapped up quite early on after you arrived at Aberdeen. So after a patchy start to the campaign, you forced your way into the starting 11 around the turn of the year. And then 18th of January 2009, you, you got your only goal for Aberdeen, a fine finish and a 4-2 victory over Celtic. Can you remember much about the goal 
um, itself, and then I'll maybe let you describe the celebration. <laughs> I do actually. Um, what it is, I've actually been out out for seven weeks before that. Um, I got both my knees done. I had tendonitis in my knees, which were giving me a lot of pain for probably two years. Um, I'd literally played zero minutes. Um, I'd played a friendly against the RAF, the the UK RAF on the Wednesday at Bulgownie for 45 minutes and Jimmy took me off at half time and I was furious thinking that I'd had a bad game or I was, you know, I was needing the minutes. He said, no, no, I arrived on a Saturday, obviously, to start, which I did not expect at all. And um, the first 10, 15 minutes were just a bit of a blur, trying to get up to, up to speed and, um, you know, started off quite well. I think I, I got an assist for the second, I think it was Gary McDonald's got the goal with a header. And then obviously the goal that came about, I knew that Mark Kerr was, you know, he's quite a clever player and played one in behind and just timed my run quite well, playing off the left and just tucked under, I think it was Arthur Boric, I'm not sure, I think could well have been, but yeah, it was, my celebration was just, you know, bending my knees, just about coming back from a double knee up um, and then to obviously have an assist and score a, winner, score a goal against Celtic, uh, just rounded off a really nice day for me and uh, some of I've probably the highlight for me, my Aberdeen career is that, that day as a whole, uh, just fantastic. And it's always nice to score, but to score against Celtic uh, and win is always better. As a boyhood daughter, I mean, you're one of the very privileged few that's been able to be a fan, be in the stands, then go and pull on that shirt. Can you try to put into words just the feeling of, you know, effectively completing football? If you know, you've now scored for Aberdeen, and as you say, it's against Celtic. Can you just put into words like just how that felt? It would probably uh, quite, you know, now thinking about it, it's probably quite emotional. Um, that moment in time, you've very little time to actually react to it. So it's just, you feel that admiration from the fans. That's the main thing that stood out for me was, I remember walking over towards almost the south stand corner and I could feel that energy coming back off the off the fans it's 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 a very hard to describe it's not a you know an outer body experience but it's just such a good feeling such a good feeling it gives you that lift that confidence to kind of you know you can conquer play against anybody regardless of who you're up against whether it be well maybe not Messi and Ronaldo but whoever you may be up against uh, at that moment in time but yeah just a really really special moment and hugely gratifying to for me to come back from that injury that moment in time in my career and to go on with the performance and get the win was was the most important thing. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can score great individual goals and have a, a part to play in assists, but the result and the three points are the main thing at the end of the day. And for me, that's, that's the most important thing. But no, just a special moment for me, really special. I'm glad you've cleared up the celebration as well. I've always thought you were just putting on a pair of imaginary wellies was what I thought was <laughs> happening. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. we've got to the bottom of that now. It's generally a bit of a frustrating campaign for, for Aberdeen. Knocked out the Scottish Cup at the quarterfinal stage. Um, a penalty shootout defeat to Dunfermline and, and current boss Stephen Glass actually scored in the shootout that night. Um, the season rounds off with a 2-1 victory over Hibs at Batodri to secure fourth spot and a return to European football. But all the headlines are about the rumours sweeping the ground before the game, um, which were confirmed pretty much straight after full time that Jimmy Caldwood and Jimmy Nicol and Sandy Clark were going to be relieved of their duties. When did you guys in the squad get an inkling that something was happening? And what was the reaction like in the dressing room when it's confirmed that the the guys are being let go? To be honest, it wasn't until a lot of the guys had actually left the stadium. So what you tended to find was some of the guys would go up to the lounges and either be presented with their Man of the Match awards or go around and see their family and friends and 
it was quite a bit after the actual game that we caught wind of it. I remember I was had the end rent accommodation not far from Petodre, and that's when I heard. Uh, it's not as if we got you know got dragged into the dressing room and then told automatically. It was kind of you know third party you're here and you're like you sure you sure and then it was confirmed on the BBC radio you're tuning in the BBC Sports sound on the on the TV and yeah it was just it was really disappointing it kind of took the took the edge off the the result that we had that that day to to get ourselves into Europe you know everybody was in a buzz finished the season quite strongly uh, and then for that to happen it was a bit of a oh you know where do we go from here so. Then it was just a bit of a waiting game to see who actually came in, and um, I'm sure you guys know the rest about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after a wee while, uh, Mark McGee decided he was ready to be the Aberdeen manager. But what were your initial impressions of Mark and his coaching staff? I think he had Scott Leach, and it was maybe Colin Meldrum, was it? Goalkeeping coach? Yeah, yes. Scott Leach was, you know, really good characters. Um, whether it was the right time and the right fit for Aberdeen at that moment in time, I Probably that'd be my question, Max. You know, Mark McGee is a player in Aberdeen. You know, got a Gothenburg legend, absolute legend. It's always going to be difficult to come back and replicate anything near to that. To be honest, so he's always and uh, I don't think it helped his first press conference as well. You know, saying that he should have potentially been the Celtic manager. So that's that's something you just you know automatically the fans have clicked onto that. The players have clicked onto that. You know, does he really want to be here? Um, after that, you kind of just need to get on with it, but just go on and do 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 what you, do your best for him. Um, I just I just think that that time for Mark McGee was a, a difficult period for him. And did he understand the the enormity of the of the job in hand, the the club in hand? You know, because he inherited a a very good squad that had finished third a fourth the year before at Hibs, and then you know you don't turn into a bad team bad team overnight. So for whatever reason that may have been. Um, it was a tricky period. That was tricky. So let's uh, let's talk about this time in in, uh, in some detail, starting with the preseason trip to Austria, which looked from the outside looking in an interesting preseason tour. Um, maybe the polite way to describe it. Um, what are your recollections of that, and how did the squad? Well, how did the squad take to the uh, the new regime? Um, as, as I touched on, it was you know it was a bit of kicking the teeth hearing that from a manager that he'd rather be coaching another team at that moment in time, um, almost like it was a second option. But like I said, you kind of forget about that, dust it down and get on with it. Um, you, you do that most to kind of support the management staff and what they are trying to implement. Um, whether there was a, a loss of translation in between from management staff to the players, I think there was a, a lack of communication and a lack of probably clarity in exactly what we, what it is we're trying to, trying to achieve. Um, pre-season trip in Austria was... I'd been actually there a few times at Obertron uh, with Dundee United, so I knew exactly the ins and outs of where we were going. And um, I wouldn't say it became farcical, but it was it wasn't your normal preseason. I don't think the demands were there um, on the players. You know, preseason predominantly here are horrible. They're you know worst four or five six weeks of your life. At, at those times, you would really see a ball. Um, however, it was a change attacked a little bit and it wasn't probably as intense as it should have been however you know the guys put in the effort and it was a it was a strange one because the teams that were coming up against over there as well were you know like junior pub teams you know they weren't really pushing us and testing us out so we potentially went into the season with a bit of false confidence and a bit of false hope thinking that we were actually better than we were and I think um, quite quickly 
that came to fruition and we kind of found out that, you know, maybe we did need to boot up, boot up the arse and, you know, really get on with things and, you know, work a lot harder in training um, right from the top down. And obviously the, the new manager's first game in charge is that infamous Europa League uh, tie against Sigma <laughs> Olimic, where, um, as I recall, you ended up being deployed at centre-half alongside Andy Considine. Going into that game, I mean, how far out did you know that you were likely going to have to play at centre-half? And what were your kind of thoughts about going into that game? Probably about an hour and a half before it. Okay, as soon that, as that. Yeah, yeah. I never, ever played there before. Um, fortunately enough, I was, you know, I'd big Andy alongside me. And yeah, it was just one of those nights where... You, you could tell, you know, I'm not. I'm going to be all. I'm going to be honest. You know, I'm. I'm certainly not a centre half. I probably am closer to a centre half now because I've got a bit more weight and I can't run as much. But no, it's it was baffling to me as a player, and I'm sure that other players. You know, there was a few guys that were played out of position. If I remember rightly, Derek Young was right back, so um, he's at a coaching staff just now, and he, he always remember, reminds me of that one. Um, but just strange, strange deployment or utilising the players. Just strange. Um, were we that threadbare in the squad that we didn't have any other centre-halves there? No. There were other guys that probably could have played there and done a job better than me, by all means, 100%. So, yeah, it was a it was a strange one for us as players. Um, but again, are you going to turn around and say, listen, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play yeah. centre-half today. You're going to do what you think is the best you can do on that given time. But, um, yeah, it was a tough one. I mean, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, obviously, because that's unfair. But for fans looking in, I always thought that, that night there was a bunch of players who were kind of almost hung out to dry a wee bit by the management with being asked to do roles that they just were not familiar with, even, you know, never having played it before. Um, and I remember watching the lineup and it was just like, hang on, Derek Young's playing right back. Stuart's played yeah. centre half, I think. Ricky Foster played left back, I think considering the centre of the park and it was just like I don't understand what is going on here and it just felt like like I say it felt like players were being hung out to dry more than more than anything else yeah it was just it's, like you say it's probably you were scratching your head just as much as we are probably <laughs> um, before it came and we had a way to take the field in a big European game but ach, it was just one of those and you know I learned an experience and no matter no matter whether you think you should be playing or where you should be playing, you need to go in there and try and kind of do your utmost. And just one of those nights, you find that in European football, there's very little margin for mistakes. So as soon as you play a player out of position, it's it's counteracted. The player, you know, the team are well aware of that. That you're certainly not a centre half or a right back or whatever it may be, and they're really focusing on that. And that's the level of player you're playing against, the level of teams, the the in depth kind of analysis they do beforehand they know exactly who they're coming up against in the weak points of the team so um, just a bad night all round and you know went from bad to worse with that wee leg as well yeah so the return leg yeah wasn't much better I think it was back to the wall lost 3-0 after being 2-0 I think we're 2-0 down after only 14 minutes um, was there a real fear that this could get even more brutal than the first leg yes there was potential for that um, we went into that game actually with quite a Quite a good good bit of spirit, quite a quite a lot of belief that we could get ourselves back into that game. Um, our thoughts were that there's no way that it could have played as well as it did at Petordre, but on the flip side of that, I don't think we could have played any worse. So um it's a tough one, but over there they were that you know, there was a bit of humidity there. I found, especially you know, later on in my career playing abroad, that the standard of players in the so-called minnow countries that you would probably look at and say, you know, who are, um, you know, 
who who is this we're playing against, regardless of who it may be, and they come out and they've got international quality players. I think the centre half at that moment in time was tipped for Chelsea at nine million or something like that. And um I think there is there is scope for Scottish people to be a bit narrow minded with that and um, when it comes to opposition teams from Europe because you know you tend to find most of the time now there's no rubbish teams in Europe you know in that first second leg so uh, they were a good side a very good side and a big learning curve for, for everybody in that field that day and yeah good experience but at the same time a bad one more importantly Graham you were there what do you remember I, I was it? there having committed to go before the first leg <laughs> so uh, I was there I remember Jamie Langfield saved a penalty so it could have been worse uh, it was an interesting place all went to itself actually it was quite nice which is maybe the highlight of the, the trip um, but yeah th- th- these these things happen and yeah so it's, it's a good point actually I myself included there's probably a tendency to be who are we playing all right never heard of these guys so they must be rubbish but you're right the way the game is now every team has got some excellent technically gifted players who have either not quite made the grade or are on the cusp of making the grade and the margins for error are much, much smaller than than they ever used to be. Um, so maybe my last question on that uh, that game was probably just what was the reaction of the manager, Mark McGee, to those two defeats? You know, was it the, the hairdryer treatment or was he a slightly different type of character when he was the manager? Um, he, he had the potential to, to, to go off and one, but I think after... You know, he saw the quality they were up against. Um, I think if we'd had played to the optimum of our ability that day, it still would have been a very hard game. You know, we might have got ourselves back into an early goal, but I think he was at the realisation that we came up against a very good side. Um, I think if you looked on a couple of years after that, you know, they were into the knockout stages of Europe and, you know, they went in quite good runs after that. So it just showed you the quality they were up against. Um, that day, and, no, there wasn't any harsh words said after it. I think it was just disappointing, and he used that as a an, an experience probably for himself and the players to to take on and move forward. You know, these are the situations we want to be in, albeit on the correct right uh, correct end of the result. But um, that's where you want to be as a player. You know, challenging yourself against the, the elite in Europe, and you know that's that's where you're going to test yourself. We all know the legend of Drew Jarvie um, in the Liverpool dressing room saying like when we were like four or five goals down, you know, three quick goals, we're right back in it. Was there anyone in the Dolls dressing room giving it that kind of patter or was it just a case of let's get through tonight and get back to Scotland? No, there's there's always, there's always, you'd actually be surprised how many players actually got that in the locker now. Um, You know, show that leadership, leadership qualities regardless of having been doing two or three, four goals down, they'll still see the the potential positive in that, you know, drive other guys on. And that's that's your captains, that's your leaders. And you'll be able to pick them out in the fields themselves, you know, whether that, that be a fan or, you know, a pundit or a player, you know, you, you know the players that you can trust alongside yourself. So there's always there's always hope. Um, there's no point in you being in the field or even lacing up your boots if that's your attitude towards it. Uh, that's my outlook on it. Regardless, you know, an early goal can change everything. You see teams that go down to 10 men, they're 2-0 down yet, come back and, you know, come back and win the game 3-2. You know, football's a funny game and um, it takes a certain character and a certain attitude to get the results that you want. It's a bit of a stop-start campaign for yourself. You're kind of in and out of the team, which includes a, a very brief loan spell at Inverness, Cali, for, uh, for December of 2009. And the season kind of meanders for Aberdeen um, exiting the Scottish Cup following a 1-0 defeat at home to Rafe Rovers in a fifth round replay and ultimately Aberdeen finished the campaign in ninth spot you make your final appearance for Aberdeen in a 1-0 victory at 
St Mirren on the final day of the season. When were you told by the manager that he wasn't going to renew your contract? And did you have any kind of inkling that this was going to be the case? Because you featured really heavily towards the end of that season. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a strange one how it all came about. And I had basically fallen out of the team a little bit and the opportunity came up to go up to Inverness for a month over Christmas, who were then top of the championship pushing for promotion. Um, and Terry Butcher and Morris Malpass, going back a few years, my youth team coaches were the management team in place there. So it was a no-brainer. Went up there for three or four games against Dundee, Wraith Rovers, Dunfermline, I think. Um, came back and I was absolutely flying. Um, felt really good, played centre mid, and I was like, right, I'm at it now. Surely I've been got, given an opportunity. Surely Terry's spoken to Mark McGee and told him, you know, how I'm doing and stuff. And yeah, I came back. And it wasn't until things were really quite struggling a little bit that he put the more experienced players back in, whether that's Derek Young, Darren Mackey, myself, Chris Clark, you know, certain players that had been out the team because I think the likes of Fraser Fivey, Mick Payton, uh, Mitchell Meganson, Clark Robertson, he put far too many younger players in at that moment in time, albeit it's it's great, but I, I think they needed that experience in. And you found that if you look back at the last nine games, I think we had quite a good run, uh, finished the season quite strongly, and yet all those boys that were basically dug them out of hole were told they, they were no longer sur- well, there were surplus of requirements. So I was actually told if, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said this, but I, um, I was actually told if I hadn't, if I didn't have a club that you know to give them a ring later in the later in the summer holidays and uh, see if I maybe come back and then train and take it for there. But I'd already signed a pre-contract with Inverness, so I thought that was a bit uh, a bit naughty, but it's something that I chuckle about now. Good to know that level of preparation is what was going on at the club at that time. Um, so, yeah, ultimately you leave Aberdeen, made a total of 52 appearances, scoring one goal against Celtic. And as you say, you returned to Inverness Calithisol on a permanent contract. Um, I guess, was Terry Butcher and Morris Pampas the big, the big kind of draw to that club? Yeah, I'd, I'd been there for a month um, over the over the festive period, just um, the season before, and I knew that they'd been promoted um, it was always going to be a challenge and ask for them to kind of maintain their position in the top flight. I think if you look at any club coming up, it's really difficult. But we actually hit the ground running and we had such a good squad. Were we the most technically gifted squad? Probably not. However, a harder working team, probably not in the league, if I'm being honest. Um, a lot of good experienced pros and, yeah, working alongside um, Morris and Terry, again, was was, was a huge factor. And Inverness, a lovely place to stay and. It's not on the same scale at Aberdeen as in the pressure that's on you as a player, uh, but you know a really nice, really nice place to place to live, and um, it's great to see them doing so well this year in the championship as well. Because a lovely club. Yeah, so of course, as as you say, Inverness Calthorpe, they're making the return to the top flight, and you yourself, you had a fine season, making thirty four appearances, getting uh, one more goal on your uh, on your career history there. And Cali finished in seventh spot, so top of the, the bottom six split with a points haul, good enough to finish in fifth, actually. Um, comfortably clear of Aberdeen in ninth place, but let's move on. Um, negotiations about a follow-up contract with Cali stall, and then you end up making the move in November of 2011 to join, and correct me if I got the pronunciation wrong here, Cormie in the Maltese Premier League for the remainder of the season. It's a bit of an left field out of the box move for a guy that's you know spent his entire career in Scotland how did that move come about 
Yeah, quite quite strange looking back on it myself. Um, at that moment in time, uh, I was you know very friendly. Well, I still am you know very friendly with Mark Kerr. He had actually made the jump to go and play in the Greek Super League, so I was very close to him. And he was telling me you know how good it was you know playing abroad and you know if the opportunity ever came up that to give it a go. Um, with me knocking back the contract to Inverness, a lot of these foreign moves get fallen through at the last minute. It's not as easy as if yeah deal's done. Actually, you can you can commit to that. You know, it's not until you actually go over there, sign a bit of paper that it is officially done. So things kept falling through, and yeah, I just got a left field call from an agent just saying, "Would you would you like to go over and sample sample it for a couple of months?" And which I did, which I did, and yeah, it was yeah, it was okay. It was a bit of an eye opener because, if I'm being brutally honest, it was probably of the level of League Two in Scotland, so it was a fair drop down. Um, difficult pitches. You know, lovely place though, lovely place. Um, but no, difficult pitches and yeah, it was a good experience though. So after his experiences in Malta, it was Kairat Almaty who actually, you know, came calling. You signed a one day or one year deal uh, with them. So how did that one come about? And did you need much convincing in terms of you know what it took to make you sign? Not particularly. No, I I was on my way to Sainford and Fermland. I'd already arranged a deal with Jim McIntyre, who was the manager at that time. I'd played with him at Dundee United and actually in the car with Mark Kerr and the agent phoned on the day that I was due to Sanford and Fermland and agent phoned. It was basically a sink or swim moment. You know, do you take the gamble or not? He said, listen, they want to have a look at you. Um, as all agents do, it's 90% done. However, you know, that's that's never ever true. So I had to take a, take a chance and go over to Turkey uh, where we do most of our training camps and go over and play a couple of games. So I arrived at four in the morning, had a game at half eight uh, against an African team. Um, the name passes me, but did quite well in that one. And then I had another game at five o'clock in the evening. So two games in one day. And uh, fortunately for me, I did quite well in that. And they offered me a deal that, you know, there and then. So it was then a case of getting a Russian agent over to to translate and get everything done. And yeah, a bit surreal. Everything happened so quickly. But yeah, I want to... Another thing that you know I'm really fond of, and you know a big part of my uh, career. To be fair, Almaty versus Dunfermline is not really much of a, a choice. Well, at, at the time, I probably shouldn't still say it now, but at the time, the big thing with um, Kazakhstan was obviously the film Borat. So I made the mistake of actually saying that to some of the guys when I first <laughs> arrived, and they gave me the gun signals and like slit me the throat. <laughs> and they could only speak broken English, so they were either were furious. So they said. So I never, ever mentioned after that because they just said it was disrespectful to their country and, you know, wait until you see when you arrive. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was strange. It's, uh, it's always a good way to um, get yourself well liked in the dressing room, isn't it? Offend, offend your teammates. Yeah. So after um, a good start initially with Kyra, you, you extended your deal for another season. How did you find life in Kazakhstan? I mean, I'm guessing that probably took quite a lot of adjusting to. You've got a new league, new players and a new country all hitting you at once. It can be, I think, I think if it, it takes a certain type of character to go abroad. I think if you look at the majority of people that do take a gamble and go abroad and play at a decent level, they tend to stay for probably less than a year. You know, stay anywhere up to a year. It's very rare that they actually stay beyond that, you know, two, three years and have a, have a consistent career away abroad. Um, I, to be honest, had that, you know, I just embraced it. I think it's vitally important to have that kind of mindset. It takes a strong character to go into another country, different language, religion, food, 
uh, humidity, te- you know, everything, everything that's there. But it was such a good experience. And for me, it it probably made me a more all-rounded person, made me a far better person, a far better football player, that's for sure. Um, playing, with better, playing with better players, if I'm being honest. Um, the infrastructure over there was incredible. The, the training facilities, I was in a hotel the first year, um, which was, you know, like a resort hotel, which was great. A bit lonesome at times, of course, but... You know, the guys were great and take them out for tea. I think I ate in one night the whole time I was there. The guys would always take you out, you know, with their families and they'd look to learn English and vice versa. You'd look to pick up Russian. And the second year was a lot easier because I had a translator, but I could get by with the Russian that I'd picked up in training. Um, you start with the basics, you know, up, down, left, right, through ball pass and just kind of mumble jumble your conversation together. And the guys were great and uh, such a fantastic place, beautiful place. And... What an experience. What an experience. You said there that the standard in Malta wasn't great. What was the standard like in Kazakhstan? Better probably than the SPL, if I'm being brutally honest. Um, there was probably two teams at that time, Toby and Astana, who probably were on par with Celtic and Rangers. The rest of the teams would have been quite easily top six in Scotland. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the way it worked out. I think it was two years after I left Kairat because of the age restriction that um, Aberdeen actually drew them. Yeah, in the Europa League so I'd warned everybody I said listen you know you'll be quite surprised at the level of the standard that they're at um, and I was kind of proved right in, in some respects you know, as much as I wanted Aberdeen to progress it was it was one of those it was you know you, you, could, you could do that a million times and never get that draw again and for my two ex-teams to come out against each other my hometown club and the club that I just spent two years at had such a good time at to be drawn against each other it was it was a fantastic uh, experience, but I did warn people. I said, listen, the quality that they're able to attract at these clubs is incredible. The infrastructure, the money, um, international players, you know, high, high level. And it just, it does make you a better, better player. But again, this is, takes me back to my point about being a bit closed-minded in the Scottish game a little bit. And there's so many quality sides out there and so many quality players. It's uh, de- definitely worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think at that point when Aberdeen drew them, they'd been throwing a bit of money about as well, hadn't they, Kaira? And was there, oh, was there Yarmashuk? Timashuk was Timashuk, there. Timashuk, that was the one I was thinking about. And then... Yeah, Timashuk and Andrea Shea. I was going to say Arshavin ended notes. up there not yeah, long after. Yeah. So, um, they were there and they were able to attract, you know, okay, albeit they were the, the guys were getting a little bit later in their career, but the quality that they had, you know, Timashuk's a Champions League winner at Bayern Munich. You know, he's Zenit St. Petersburg who won the Europa League and yeah, just incredible players. Um, but yeah, yeah, they use their money wisely and they, they really they really spent a lot of money in the infrastructure and the academies. So that was that was a huge thing for me and to see the level that they're at now. And I'm still in touch with quite a lot of them and the boss and stuff. And I've got a really good relationship there. So I'm sure in time I'll be back over to visit them yet again. So your two-year spell at Kairat sees you make 50 appearances in total, uh, scoring a goal. And you're then forced to move on due to rules at least to our understanding, rules surrounding foreign players and how many they can keep. Um, so obviously criteria to be kept there. A little bit of a sort of, you know, hypothetical question, but if you'd had the chance, would you have stayed at Kairat? 100%. Uh, I don't think my missus now would, would, would <laughs> enjoy me saying that. But no, um, yeah, it was just that age restriction. If you were over the age of 30, you needed to have a national team cap within the last year. Ah, right. Um, so there was actually talk of taking Kazakh residency and, you know, a passport and stuff like that. Um, but... One hundred percent. I would have. I would have still probably been there to this day, if I'm being brutally honest. Um, 
but no, I've got a really good relationship with everybody still there. So like I said, there's a good chance that whether it be a holiday or whatnot, that I'll, I'll end up back there or near it, near or thereabouts come time. Uh, good stuff. So as it is, you make the return uh, back to Scotland and you have a three-year stint with Cove Rangers who were, who were at that point still in the Highland League before rounding off your career with, with the locals. Kept up your connections though um, at Aberdeen after retiring from the game, doing some work, you know, doing the corporate hosting in the lounges, working as a pundit on Red TV, taking up your coaching with the with the Youth Academy initially, working with the 15s, working your way to your A&B licence. Um, before this summer, you were announced as being the new youth phase manager as part of the overall revamp of the club's youth setup. Can you um, just explain to us and get, give our listeners a bit of um, uh, a bit of a view on what your new role entails, the responsibilities of that, etc.? Essentially, the, the responsibility is to create, a, create an environment for the, for the younger players to show exactly what they've got and give them give them that environment and that kind of place to go and produce week in, week out and potentially get them into the first team, get them prepared. There's a foundation phase that Lee McGarry leads. That's from um, under 10s or under 9s, younger now, to under 12s. I then overlook, oversee the under 13s, the under 16s. And then obviously Barry, Barry Robson, Scott Anderson look after the development phase from 16s to 18s. And there has to be a, a transparency right along the board that each of us know what the demands are to, to get into the Aberdeen first team and give them the opportunity. At the end of the day, it's it's down to the players. We can only create, like I said, that environment, give them the, the best coaching that's out there. I think if you look over the coaching staff that, that we've got, it's some really young, exciting coaches, some experienced coaches. So there's a good blend there. Um, and again, we've been fortunate enough to actually work with the, some of the best kids in and around Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire, you know, way up north. And we've got one or two from from um, the central belt, but it's predominantly kids from around about here. And I think if you ask any Aberdeen fan, come time, they would love to see a conveyor belt of homegrown talent producing the first team. Uh, and that's got to be our ambition. Um, so overseeing the coaches, the philosophy of the club, how exactly we want to go about things, you know, be, be a leader within the, the academy structure of Scotland, you know, can we break the norm, you know, and produce players every year. That's that's the demand setting us as coaches and, and managing staff. And that's that's what we want to do for Aberdeen. I'm sure we will do that with the with structure that's in place. And you know, I know that the management team, you know, if, if you're good enough, you're old enough. So um fingers crossed. And it's a role that I, you know, I'm very privileged to be given the opportunity to to take on board and not something I'm going to take lightly. I'm going to work tirelessly to to do my best to create that environment and give the, give the best platform for the guys. And, you know, there has to be a clear pathway, regardless of age, to get into that first team and have a, have a future career in football at whatever level that may be, but hopefully in Aberdeen's first team. You know, it's it's been a turbulent um, season so far, um, putting it mildly, but I think everyone would agree that the, the two highlights undoubtedly have been the performances of Calvin Ramsey and Jack McKenzie in the first team. And you know we've made mention to it. There's been impressive performances by 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 Robson's under 18s in both the league and the SPFL Trust Trophy. How optimistic are you about the club's future youth development? And in terms of you know, is there a belief that amongst the young players and the parents and the families that Aberdeen is a place that you can come and develop as a player and also have that pathway to to go on and make a career as a professional? For us as coaching staff, that, that has to be the, the minimum criteria is to to, to be give, to be giving these guys the the opportunity, the environment to create that pathway for them to get into whether it be Barry's 18 squad then into the first team. If you look at the players that have broken in, there has been a clear pathway all the way through. 
Uh, yeah, have they had it easy? No, not at all. Is it is everybody going to make it through to that level? Probably not. However, all we can do is kind of give them the the, the best tools and things to go away and work on. Um, it, it is difficult, of course, of course. But as you're well aware, you know Barry's created a good atmosphere within that 18 squad, and you can see Velocity actually getting pushed down to the younger age group. So when they do come to 15, 16 year old, why can they? Why can they not play in under 18s? week in, week out, and really push himself a couple of years above himself because then you're down to the nitty-gritty and that's when it gets interesting because you see the players that can handle it and they're more than capable. Um, you need to take a lot of things into account as well. You know, the physical attributes, you know, guys grow at the different stages, but within the academy right now, there's there's certainly a lot of talent and showing there's, a, there's certainly a, a lot of conveyor belt of, of talent that I feel that, and I know that other coaching staff feel that we can really push on, you know, Gavin Levy, the, the head of the academy, is really optimistic about pushing and developing the academy as a whole, um, really evolving us, because that's what we need to do to stand up to some of these teams that can go and spend thousands and thousands or millions of pounds in players. We don't really have that luxury, so it's up to us to put that demands on ourselves. Yeah, I think that's all really encouraging, you know, something we're certainly enthusiastic around, you know, the, the chairman was on a sports interview recently saying that maybe there had previously been a belief among maybe it was the youngsters' parents that maybe you can't get into the team. It was really encouraging to sort of bust that myth, if you like, that there absolutely is a pathway. And you're right, maybe that gives us an edge where we can't go out and maybe buy a younger player. But players and parents are looking at Aberdeen thinking, you've now got first squad, you know, first class training facilities, got a, a staged coaching setup, and more importantly, look, there's youngsters in the first team. Go and, go and sign for Aberdeen, you've actually got a chance of playing, whereas maybe some of the bigger clubs, you know, how many ever actually get a chance to get near the bench, <laughs> never mind, you know, near the squad. So you can you can you can you can certainly rest assured that there's there's an abundance of talent all the way down that Aberdeen have got at their disposal. And we can only give them as, you know, the best like I touched on before, the best environment, the best coaching that we can. And a lot of it comes down to the players at the end of the day because the opportunities will be there for them. And I think the fans should be very excited of the players and the standard that's coming through because it's, you know, of a very high level. So we need to maintain that and push it on. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that you've made. We, you know, quite often, not just Aberdeen, but general clubs are telling fans, look, there's lots of good players, you know, don't worry. But you're absolutely right that they're only good if they take that opportunity themselves. There's only so much you as a coach can do. So it's encouraging to know that the, the talent is currently there throughout the age groups, you know, fingers crossed these guys make the most of the opportunities that, you, you know, you're, you're working hard to provide them. So uh, the final question for me would just be around your current role. Is that an area you see yourself staying in, in terms of the youth side of sort of coaching and managing, or do you have aspirations to maybe, you know, push on whether it's throughout the age groups or actually be a first team coach or manager? There's never been, there's never been that real ambition as of yet to, be a first team manager or a coach or anything around about that. I think um, my role that I, I'm in currently just now, you know, I'd be silly if I didn't go along to as many sessions as I can, whether it be with the 18s and first team, to just pick up that knowledge from working alongside, you know, top quality coaches like the management team staff that we've got in just now, you know, from Stephen Glass to Henry Apollo to Alan Russell to, to Scott Brown, you know, You'd be you'd be an idiot if you didn't try and take on some of these guys' uh, ideas and the philosophies, of course. So um, that that'll be beneficial to myself. But for my role just now, I don't foresee 
any anything hopefully really changing and you know the near future I'm very settled in this role it's it's a role that I kind of want to take on you know relentlessly and kind of really progress at because the best thing I would like to see is as many young homegrown talent playing in Aberdeen's first team for me I think that would give me the biggest satisfaction regardless of you know ability level anything like that as long as they can get into the first team and my challenge to them now is would a player sign for Aberdeen and potentially stay at Aberdeen for 15, 20 years? Probably not. So we have to be realistic about that. If the opportunity comes up to have, you know, go and break the ceiling, I would love an Aberdeen player to go and, you know, playing in the higher echelons of the Champions League, you go and play for some of these sides. And then we're looking at it and saying, well, you know, we've produced that. We can actually produce Champions League players. Um, they've, earned a, they've learned a trade at Aberdeen. And I think, you know, it's a no-brainer for for kids within Aberdeen, you know, you're going to be given an opportunity. If you're good enough, you will be given an opportunity. It's as simple as that. And can you push through the ceiling? Not just be happy playing for Aberdeen. You know, go and earn that international call-up. Go and earn that uh, multi-multi-million pound move. You know, I'm sure nobody at Aberdeen would argue with that. The fans wouldn't, certainly. And, you know, it's pushing the player on themselves and it's going to have a knock-on effect and everything, whether it be from money coming back into the academy, and it's just a it's a vicious cycle and we have to push the players as much as we can. And I, I know for a fact that we've got crop of players from the academy right down that have the potential for that. Whether they come to that, we shall see. But I've got belief in in in, in their ability and I've got a belief in the, the structure that we've got being given and the environment from the chairman all the way down from the manager, all the way down that it's the correct environment for these guys and um, they're going to flourish. Yeah, no, that's all really encouraging. Yeah, I was going to say, there's nothing better than a homegrown fan. I mean, anyone who represents Aberdeen is living, you know, my dream, Gary's dream, Gavin's dream. But there's something more personal about a local, you know, a local lad who, who makes it. That's that's more obviously you than anyone else um, representing the club. So, yeah, certainly hope that all plays out um, as you're hoping it's going to play out as well. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like a really exciting role, and I think we'll all be very happy to hear that infrastructure is being put in place with your uh, with yourself at the helm. There, it's something Aberdeen fans all love to see. Um, but Stuart, well, we're going to wrap this up now. Um, we thank you very much for your time here, but we'll finish up with one final question. It's uh, a question we've asked all our guests so far, and uh, I think you're the first Aberdeen fan turned player we've asked this, so I guess this will be a very interesting question or answer, should I say? What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? Passion, history. Um, you know, it's in, it's in my blood. It's in your blood. You know, you're, you're brought up with it, and you, you know, it means a lot to you. It's it's the it's the heart of the city for me. Um, I think it's 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 got a bigger part to play, not only just with football. I think out with football, the things the community trust does. Uh, you know, it's a huge, huge thing. And you know, to be able to represent Aberdeen, it's just you know, it's been a great honour for me and a privilege. And to find myself back working at Aberdeen, I have to kind of nip myself sometimes, but it's just a fantastic, fantastic club. And, you know, it's just a great place to to work. And, you know, it's just passion, passion. I think, you know, the fans are, are second to none. You know, it's just a, yeah, a very, very good club. And, you know, we want to kind of push it back up to where it should be. And we know where it can be. And I'm sure we're on the right track to that. Excellent stuff. Stuart Duff. Top man, thank you for joining us on the ABZ Football Podcast. Stand free. Cheers, guys. And that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and please remember to like, subscribe, follow, whatever on your podcast player of choice. And just before we go, I'd just like to thank 
absolutely everybody who signed up for the, the Rico raffle. Really, really amazed how quickly that sold out, and that's going to be a decent chunk of cash uh, for a charity. So everyone who bought a ticket, thank you very much. And on that note, I thank you to everyone as well who bought a ticket for the Duncan Shearer raffle. It's money that will go to a great cause, the Aberdeen FC Community Trust. So thank you very much. On that note, join us next week for episode 18 of the ABZ Football Podcast, where we'll look ahead to the return of domestic football and our visit to Tanadice to take on Dundee United. We will also take our usual look at the women's team and our youth setup before we round things off with an exclusive interview with a gentleman who arrived to Aberdeen for one year via Toulouse and left an indelible mark on the Aberdeen support. And likewise, that support left an indelible mark on him. It's the one and only, who's your fucking daddy? It's Eugene Daddy. We look forward to seeing you then. Stan free. This episode of the APZ Football Podcast was brought to you by Maritime Developments Limited, Flexley engineering experts for the global energy sectors. MDL's rental fleet raises the bar for innovative design, technical performance and reliability. The market-leading equipment is backed by in-house expertise in design, engineering and offshore operations, which makes them the safest choice for project success. Get in touch at maritimedevelopments.com to find out how they can help you secure that competitive advantage.